Stop it! Don't open that door! Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 31 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. I am VG Collectaholic here with Caleb J. Ross, as always. We are a different kind of video game podcast, or at least that's what we tell ourselves at night. One of us is an author, a YouTuber, and a game lover. That's that man right over there, Caleb J. Ross. And I am an attorney, collector, and recovering game store owner. And together we like to delve into the business, the economics, the law, and the psychology of video games. We do that. We also like to have a little bit of fun. Caleb, <laughs> how you been, bud? Man, I've been fantastic. I've been playing a crap ton of video games lately, which has been awesome. Oh, man. Um, I've been trying to doll up my game room a little bit in the sense of... I have a lot of posters and stuff that I'm finally getting around to hanging up properly with frames mm. and all that fun stuff. I'm, I won't be happy until every square inch of my wall is pretty much covered, and I kind of like that weird sloppy, though aesthetically organized, but still sort of haphazard style. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I guess I just kind of like it, uh, you know, almost like you're walking into an antique shop. You know how in an antique shop every wall is covered with something and it just seems to fit perfectly? Yep. I, I like that feel. So I'm, I'm in the middle of doing all of that. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's pretty much what I've been up to. What, do you, what have you been up to, sir? How's it going? It's it's going well. I've been busy as heck. Uh, I haven't done any gaming, so I'm glad to hear that you've done some. I've basically just been getting my second game room ready to be filled with games. So I need to take everything out of it first. Uh, I haven't even built any of the shelves that I got last week, um, (laughs) or last episode, I should say. But it's getting there. It's getting there. I think I have a plan now for the room. I'm going to have a combination of the Atlantic Oscar 1080 shelves and some of those IKEA glass shelves with the lighting uh, to house some collectibles and statues and some of the the more rarity items. So I think it'll I think it'll turn out really looking nicely. But I love when a room has space to be filled with posters. The mm-hmm. I love the way game posters look, and even just like movie posters, anything. I love the way a framed poster looks. It just gives it that kind of juxtaposition of teenage bedroom and classiness with the the frame. <laughs> I'm a big fan of framing most things, and I think we may have talked about this long, long, long ago, but um, a long, a while, when I was young and impressionable, I'd heard a definition of art that was something to the effect of art is anything that's framed and presented. And you can take that literally, of course, but it really just means art is something that's put on display specifically for other people to think about and and appreciate from an aesthetic level. So if framed indicates, you know, a conscious effort to display it and then other people are looking at it, it being on display... And I just really like that idea. It sort of fits into my whole um, artist mindset where where I do feel like art is something that you really shouldn't try to define because it, it really does mean a lot of different things. And, and the meaning itself is what mattered. It's sort of the feeling you get from it. Um, you know, Duchamp's uh, urinal, uh, his, uh, his long ago, the artist Duchamp put a urinal in the middle of a museum as his art, as his uh, exhibit, his structure. And it sort of tore the art department the art world uh, in half because this was like so, uh, this was a a room dedicated to the finer things and this guy saying hey this this mass produced 
ceramic thing can be interesting. I mean, I'm forcing you to think about it and look at it. Why can't we do that with normal everyday things? And so I, in my game room, I do have uh, uh, lots of stuff framed, but I also have just dumb stuff framed. Uh, I have a frame that's full of old beer labels. I have a frame that's full of old uh, uh, cigar butts that are just sort of plastered in there, old cigar rings. Uh, just, uh, In fact, the, the thing I just recently hung up, I framed uh, a Fallout 4 um, poster that came in the game. It was the, the map, the essentially the, the, uh, the Commonwealth map, which for all intents and purposes isn't frame-worthy. It really is just a crappy map. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to frame it. It's going to be cool and fun, and it fills up space on the wall, and I don't. Know, I just love that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. And I think at some point, if I ever get the walls properly filled up, I may do a game room tour that no one has ever asked for and put that on my my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. But uh, and also maybe just from a from an insurance standpoint, you know what? I want documentation that I have a wall full of cigar rings, so that if uh, if those ever get stolen, I can be sure to properly fight that insurance company to get my three dollars and fifty cents back that's right that's right and you'll you'll be the first video game room tour to prominently feature a urinal in the center of your room <laughs> well you know i mean a urinal's really wherever you make it uh, you know <laughs> that is true that is true and such such delicious cake <laughs> it's true yeah uh, a urinal is wherever you make it in the sense of wherever you decide the urinal is and how far you can make it before you have to actually go yeah speaking of steaming piles <laughs> What have you been playing, Caleb? <laughs> uh, I've been playing so much stuff. Um, so I recently, and we'll talk a little bit about this during our 2019 video game goals, but I'm doing the Cartridge Club Alphabet Backlog Challenge, which I forgot how much that motivates me to truly go back and play a lot of games that, that are sitting on my backlog. So I have done that, one of which was God of War, recently finished that game, and man, oh man, that's good. I know you haven't. You said you haven't played any games, so I won't talk much about it, but once you do finish it, I'm sure we'll dedicate a little bit of time to, to digging into oh, that game. I can't wait. Um, I'm only a few hours in, but loving every minute of it so far. Yeah, super fun. And it's gotten my kid, uh, my 10-year-old, interested in Norse mythology, which is really cool. Uh, we, we played together. Not everything. It gets pretty violent, but he, he's old enough to handle the violence, but um, he's also pretty impressionable. He's just that kind of kid, so I kind of shield him from some of that stuff, but um, he was really into it. He was actually really liking the like how gods worked and how the whole idea of gods worked, and um, he was learning a lot from it, and today it just just, you know, uh, touched my heart. He sent me a text. He has a phone that he keeps at home, and so it's for emergencies and stuff like that, and he sent me a text that said, you know how there is boulder, there's a there's a bold, you know how there is a boulder uh, in God of War or something. I can't really understand what he's trying to say. Boulder is Thor's brother. Brother, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Odin's kid, Thor's yeah. brother. That's yes. right. Um, so, uh, so he says, you know how there's that. He says there's a there's a Baldur skin in in Minecraft. And then I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And he goes, and Jude found an Odin skin. So he's just recognizing these things from Norse mythology. Um, so I just told him that's really cool. And he says, and there's all the other guys too. So there's apparently a lot of other, you know, Norse, uh, mythology, Norse nice. gods in, in Minecraft. So that was cool that he just kind of paid attention to it and was just excited to tell me about it too, which I yeah. think is kind of cool. That's, that's awesome. kind of the, that's proof that you've shared a moment, right? If the kid actually wants to talk to you about something that he discovered. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So he get, he's getting into that. Um, that was a lot of fun for us to play together. Um, uh, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, I played Donut County. I'd heard about this game so much. And it always felt like it was a right up my alley, um, but I never really had the opportunity to play it because I didn't really want it digitally. I would like to have it physically, um, but I finally broke down and did get it digitally on the Switch, um, and it's it's only a couple hours long. It satisfied 
satisfied the D on my list. Um, and it's so... <laughs> I know you've been waiting to satisfy the D for a long time. Uh, well, it is a game about holes, so I guess that makes sense. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know how much you know about this game, Scott, but it is, is, is it a, it's quite possibly a perfect game. It's not over the top and crazy, but what, for all intents and purposes, in terms of games, in terms of just enjoyment and entertainment... It is very possibly a perfect video game, um, right up there with one of my with my all time favorites. Now, very short, like I said, you essentially play as a rack. You play as as a whole, like I said. It's kind of sort of a reverse Katamari Damacy, where you um, instead of rolling up items, you sort of expand a hole so that f- items drop into it. But there's actually a lot more story to it than I would have thought it thought of, and it's a super 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 funny game, um, and it. It just goes to show how great a character can be and how entertaining a character can be with so so little embellishment. It, it, the character of BK, which is a raccoon, um, and it is is super funny and super funny in a way that it, that 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 is expressed through dialogue mostly, but also just through his sort of uninterested relationships with other characters. He's very sort of dismissive of everyone else's problems. He's the kind of guy who says. You know, your house lit on fire. Well, good. That means you never have to give me that thing back that you borrowed from me. So lucky you kind of thing. That's kind of his character type. Um, but he, he's just very funny. And, and there's a there's a sort of a, the equivalent of a bestiary in the game called the Trashopedia. And it's the funniest. The descriptions of these items are the funniest things. It, it, would, it reminds me of Mitch Hedberg, uh, rest in me, rest in peace, the, the comedian who's sort of the king of just off put uh, off putting and off. Uh, off color, sort of not even off color, just uh, sort of cryptic, weird one liners. Um, he's the king of that, and it, it feels like he wrote this game. Uh, he's dead, so they probably didn't, uh, but <laughs> it feels like he did, and it's just fantastic. So I highly recommend it. Um, one they, of my roommates in college was a huge Mitch Hedberg fan, so he would just walk around the apartment quoting Mitch Hedberg one liners <laughs> incessantly. <laughs> Good, good, good man. Uh, at work, we use Slack, uh, which is like a messaging uh, tool, and you can create Slack bot responses. So in Slack, every time someone writes the word "dear gosh," that's the name of, of one of Mitch Hedberg's albums. Is I think is "Oh my gosh" or something, or "I swear to gosh" or something like that is the name of one of his albums. So if you write "dear gosh," it'll spit out a Mitch Hedberg line, which is kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, Donut County. It's uh, it's after I bought it digitally, I am eight bit announced that they're releasing it physically. Um, it's 30 bucks, which is quite a bit of money. I'm not the type of guy to, to base money on the length of a game, but 30 bucks for a couple hours is a lot. But of course I still ordered it, not only because I thought it was a, a great game and I really just want to have it so that I can play it in the future if, if, you know, servers die or anything like that. But also I'm, I'm realizing, I think that Annapurna Interactive, uh, the publisher behind, um, Donut County is probably one of my favorite publishers now. They published What Remains of Edith Finch. Um, and the the previous game to that, um, uh, the Black Swan or Unfinished Swan, um, and so they published Donut County. They also published um, Florence, which was a game that I recent that I also played. Um, it, it was just an hour long, quick mobile game, um, and they published a few others that I haven't quite played yet. But they're just they're building up this reputation as they might have done Firewatch as well. Actually, now that I think about it, maybe not. I could be lying on that. Um, but fantastic. I'm really into their stuff, so I'm going to be keeping an eye out for pretty much anything they release, and, and I will most likely enjoy it. Um, let's see. What else did I play? Gosh, lots of stuff. Um, started Ripto's Rage, the second in the Spyro series. Um, finished the last, finished the first Spyro game, so that's R on my list. So right now I have G for God of War, D for Donut County, 
um, R, uh, and then Florence, F for Florence, and then my A game was Among the Sleep, which is a game from published by Sodesco, which I've talked about in the past. It's sort of a, if I am ever, if I could ever be considered a game collector, this is sort of the one sort of subset that for some reason I'm just drawn to, the Sodesco games, even though most of them are objectively really bad. Um, <laughs> just to be fair, they really are. Um, I think I... Uh, I think I lucked out on the first couple of games I played. I, th- I played Tesla Grad, which is fantastic 2D platformer. Really, really, really good. Um, and then uh, G- Guiana Sisters or Gianna Sisters. Um, and it's pretty good 2D platformer. It gets kind of boring. But I played those like back to back. And I was like, oh, man, this Sodesco company, man. What- what's up with them? And so then I bought a few other games. And they've all been eh, entertaining enough, but really kind of lame. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It just is. Uh, but, uh, but I did play Among the Sleep, which is actually really, really, really good. So they're, they're getting in my, my better graces, I think. Nice. Uh, yeah. Well, that's uh, good. You know, every, every dozen or so Sodesco games that you buy, you should at least like one of them. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, luckily, <laughs> I am buying most of them used. You can buy them used pretty cheap, uh, unsurprisingly. I remember when we were tramping around Chicago and mm-hmm. running to, uh, GameStops, they had like a four for $20 deal going on and, you found a bunch of Sodesco games that you could add to the collection for five <laughs> yeah. bucks a piece, which... Yep. <laughs> and, and and so far, the ones that I picked up during that trip have not been worth $5, except <laughs> uh, one that I started but have not... I kind of put on hold because I, I went back and, and finished up God of War. Um, it's called World to the West, and it's by the same developer as Tesla Grad. Uh, they're called Rain Games, I think. Um, and they, and it seems like it's going to be really fun. I played about a half an hour of it. And so I'm really excited to actually dig back into that. Probably going to be very good. Um, among the sleep is crazy. It was kickstarted. Uh, I think poly kills the poly kill podcasts own, uh, Jake, uh, did like kickstarted it, um, a while ago. Uh, so it's, it's really good. It's kind of sort of a first person horror game, but from the perspective of a toddler Mm -hmm. who doesn't quite, you know, he sees the world as a toddler sees the world. So everything is kind of scary. And so, and you have a teddy bear that you hug, and when you hug it, it kind of acts as the flashlight, so it lets you see a little better. And really, a really cool concept. I'm, I'm going to be looking for more from this developer, though. I don't think they did. I don't think they've done anything else. But I'm going to look into that. Um, and then the last game that I am currently in the middle of playing uh, is La Noir on the Switch, and mm. it's it's eh. Uh, so I've far, heard the, I've heard the Switch port isn't very good. Yeah, it's not. There's there's definitely some graphical errors, some graphical issues, um, and but I think a lot of what makes me eh about it is probably things that are, are consistent across other ports as well. Uh, the the controls are pretty funky, kind of tanky a little bit. Um, you don't have to do a lot of you know quick maneuvering, which is good. So the tankiness doesn't matter too much. It's just I think it's almost too hokey in the sense of it being a 1940s noir style thing uh where everybody talks like yeah see that kind of thing mm. but it takes it to an extreme that just is hard to get invested in so the whole idea of the game is you're supposed to be you're supposed to follow the stories and be able to determine if people are lying or not and sort of so so it's more of a a a personality and and clues putting together kind of kind of game but when the actual personalities are so flat it it's tough it's tough to get into it i've played about an hour or two and according to how long to beat, it's about a 21-hour game. Oof. So I so I don't know. I may have to pick up a different L for my backlog challenge. Luckily, I bought it for, like, 
I think nine dollars on Black Friday, so it wasn't it wasn't a bad deal. But yeah, is that one that has like a download component where only part of the game is on the cart? Yes, you do have to download. That's also another kind of lame aspect of it. Um, and considering the Switch has notoriously low amount of, of, of internal memory, this one game I think was like fifteen or so gigabytes of extra download. So you're already half or more how many how many gigabytes is it called 32 i think is is the uh is the built-in uh yeah i think space so. i think so. so yeah you're already taking up like half of it um and i could be wrong it could only be six gigabytes but still that's just too much for yeah. a download so yeah uh, yeah i don't know yeah yeah rockstar they 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 swing and a miss sometimes i guess yeah it's not bad enough that they only give you part of the game on the disc but then they slap that god awful ugly white banner on top of the game art yeah. the cover <laughs> art too it's like in case you were really on the fence here's some god awful cover <laughs> art but it is it is nice though because I'm glad that they make you they they go out of their way to make sure you're aware yes. hey you will probably need to buy some other stuff to play this game now the real crime is the fact that switch has such little internal memory like yeah. that really is the problem so I'm, I am glad they do it but you're right it does Really, if anything, I wish the uh, companies that did that would make reversible cover art of just the original, you know, cover yeah. art without the line or without the white label, so that you could still have that on your shelf if you if you needed to. But yeah, yeah. So I'm glad I played a lot of stuff to make up for you not playing anything. Yeah, That's no kidding. I'm, I've got some <laughs> catching up to do here. It's a good thing we have a three day weekend coming up. I plan oh, yeah. Saturday to just kick back, not do anything. There's no football on, so. I'm uh, just going to play some video games. I'm hoping to get a good chunk of God of War knocked out on, on Saturday. We'll, you we better. shall see. We shall I see. I need to hear your thoughts as a Norse guy. I need to yes, hear your thoughts. Yes. It's funny uh, you mentioned your son with uh, think talking about Baldur because one of my f- earliest memories is actually as a kid, I would, the, the encyclopedias my parents kept on like the bottom shelf of, of the living room bookshelves. And I would just like, pull them out and flip through them. And I started because they smelled really weird. <laughs> and, <laughs> most great stories yeah, start. Yeah. And so I, I like just, you know, having, and they were really like uh, a premium feeling paper. They had very like high gloss to them and it just felt rich. Mm-hmm. And the first story or the first thing that I can indelibly remember actually reading and going to over and over was the story of Baldur in, in this encyclopedia set. I have no idea how I found it. I have no idea why I liked it so much, but I would go back to it over and over and over. And Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Wish I could, I could read more into that, but uh, yeah, I think it was just a kid who was interested with lore. That's pretty, you know, maybe that set the stage for uh, the fantasy worlds that you put yourself into now. I don't know. Ooh, look at that. You're getting all psychological. I'm just lowest common denominator. Kid likes <laughs> kid, kid likes heroic story. Yeah. Uh, wow. I broke some glass there. Ooh, broke boy. some glass. Is that a thing I, people I, say? I, I it's not. No, that, that's not a thing. <laughs> tell you what. Off. Tell you what. If you do break glass, you'll probably want to pick it up. Speaking of pickups. Ooh. Yeah. That was. Huh? We huh? are we are getting back to being awesome <laughs> at transitions. <laughs> oh yeah. That's what so we do, folks. That's what we do. Tell me about. It. Come for the video games. Come for the uh, legal long awkward and, pauses. Yep, long awkward pauses. <laughs> the god awful transitions. Stay for the fact that you have nothing else to do with your lonely, pathetic, miserable life. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for supporting us. <laughs> <laughs> Pickups. Well, uh, I think 
you know, in the spirit of of Donut County uh, and being a limited <laughs> release on PS4 by I am Eight Bit, a couple of, most of my pickups this week were other limited limited releases and things that I just had on pre order for uh, a long time that just happened to show up this past week. I picked up some uh, limited run games package showed up that had uh, their next PSVR release called To the Top. I think it's a platformer, like a 3D VR platformer. I don't know a lot about it. Hmm. Um, the Switch version of Broken Age, limited run games released for the PS4 and Vita uh, about a year and a half ago, and they just mm-hmm. now released the, the Switch port. And then uh, I think we both picked this one up, 8-Bit mm-hmm. Adventure Anthology. Did you play those games a lot as a kid? I did. I played uh, Shadowgate quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, Deja Vu is one that I played a lot of, and I didn't get it. Uh, like, I didn't understand really what was going on, because I was not familiar with point-and-click style games. Um, so I thought this was just out of the—this was crazy. Um, and as a side note, Broken Age, I think, is a game that made me realize that I hate point-and-click games. Uh, that game was not fun. Uh, but I, cause I got, I got the uh, PS4 version and I like, um, Tim Schaefer, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. The guy who, I like his stuff sometimes. I just don't like his point and click stuff. Like Psychonauts is amazing. Um, yep. and, and, uh, what was the, uh, the first half of, uh, Brutal Legend was good. So, but yeah, anyway, I played a ton of Deja Vu. So was, then did, you didn't like, uh, Grim Fandango? I didn't like Grim Fandango. Wow. Uh, I think because it's way too, uh, uh, obtuse is that the word i'm looking for it's it's just the puzzles make no sense like there's no way you could logically figure (laughs) out how to do those things like i i dare anyone to to provide proof that they actually solve those things without you know talking with kids on the playground or looking up things online or it just it's impossible you don't do that and i just don't think that's very fun so yeah yeah. i get yeah i get that i get that I think I, I think I misspoke and said Broken Age was a platformer. It's not. It's an adventure game, right? Yeah, point yeah, point-and-click point adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yep. No, the, I think you said you might you might have. I don't know if you did. I, I did know, know you, that I you said, said there was a PSVR uh, sort of action uh, platform. Would you say to the top to was the a platformer? Top. Yeah, yeah, I think. like a 3D platformer. Looks climbing all over the place. I think that's really cool and surprising to me. Um, we talked a little bit about it during the last episode. Um, how like Astrobot? I think we were talking about mm-hmm. it and Moss. How? Yep. Those platformer kind of games in VR was not something I expected. I did not expect that that would be a thing, and apparently, when it is a thing, people love it. Yeah, that's really the thing that the one thing that would get me to like try out VR is, is these platformers that I keep hearing so much about. That's Absolutely, cool. I mean, I when I got the PlayStation VR, I was re- I was expecting to basically it just be my cockpit type game, right? Either you have racing games that are cool in VR, Drive Club VR is a lot of fun. Um, or a virtual pit to put your cock in because yeah, right. that's Ex- every little boy's dream for VR. Exactly, God. exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like a donut hole, right? You know, donut <laughs> <Exactly>. county. <laughs> um, oh, man, I'm never going to be able to walk into a donut shop <laughs> the same way. <laughs> like warm apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> Why are your pants off, sir? It's a donut shop, isn't it? Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> this is how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you literally sell... Glazed holes. Okay, you come on can't now. Fault me for this. You can't tell me I'm the first guy. <laughs> oh my god! And, and they wouldn't have anything to say to that. Like, yeah, I guess you're right. You're not the first guy. You're, you're absolutely right. They would not have anything to say to that. <laughs> I can guarantee it. <laughs> Sorry, I, I interrupted. Uh, as I tend to do. Um, 
Oh, I think I was just going to use a, another example, a game that ju- I had on pre-order that just shipped today, actually. Ace Combat 7 has a VR mode that is another one of the games that I expected to really enjoy on a PlayStation, on, on just a VR environment. Um, you know, something where you're sort of tethered into a cockpit and the, the VR is more for just the free look, you know, the free look uh, capabilities while you're flying. Um, but really encouraging you to be safe and not look forward when you're flying at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's why that's what autopilot is for. Yeah. Pilots, yeah. they get they're overrated. Or you just you while you're looking around, you just keep holding down the Gatling gun and just blow up whatever's directly <laughs> in front of you. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Are you <laughs> when I was a kid, I was always very confused at how those planes with the propellers in the front but the machine guns behind the propellers did not shoot off the <laughs> propeller like did you because there were some cartoons where that would be part of the gag there'd be someone flying a plane and they would shoot the gun and it would cut up the propeller and they would crash but then the exact same model of plane in probably the same cartoon would get away with shooting the gun and not hitting the propeller very confused as a child growing up on this concept <laughs> and still am I, not just a child i'm still very confused at how that works maybe after this podcast recording i will Look it up. Yeah, it's it's about timing. So the gun is timed to the propeller. Nuh-uh. Yeah, yeah. How, what? Because the propeller's not the same speed the whole time. Like, it's, like, when it start. I guess you wouldn't need to shoot the gun as it's starting up. Yeah. Is it really timing? Like, for real? Or are you just yeah. saying that? No, it's really timing. That's way more complicated than I think it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, otherwise, otherwise you blow your propeller all to hell. And... I mean, you're right. You're not wrong. <laughs> but, like, why not make the gun higher? So that it's like up shooting above the propeller or I don't know. That just seems like it seems like the technology for those planes and those guns is old enough that precision timing wasn't really invented yet. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think there was a definitive year when precision timing was patented and that people started using that in their machines. And it was after the invention of this this plane. I think uh, you, it seems to me like you would need precision timing to even just fly in general. What? Yeah, I don't know. It seems complicated. No, you just got to you just got to move forward and have a a properly shaped wing, right? It's just propulsion from the back and a properly shaped wing and you get lift, right? Yeah, yeah, lift and thrust, lift okay. and thrust. Like <laughs> just like you're at a donut shop. <laughs> oh, you know. Now it makes sense. Yeah. Okay, moving on. I get it now. You're right. Okay. Yeah, it's timing. Got it. It's timing. You should have just said that. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't understand what's so difficult about this. It's not difficult anymore. I get it now. <laughs> You, you've been able to relate it to something I'm familiar with, yeah. and now it makes sense. Thank See, you. See, it's all about analogy. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Where were we? Uh, uh, I think we were still talking about pickups. Yep. All right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and and not like the kind of pickups. <laughs> Boo. Yeah. So last, last episode, I mentioned that uh, something that had just arrived that I hadn't really had a chance to mess around with it all was the fang multi- the fang controller tower uh which discart guy had done a video of and and i saw the video prompted me to buy it it looked amazing uh and i ha- i'm happy to report it is he wasn't lying it's very <laughs> cool um pretty easy to put together uh i i can't build anything and i was <laughs> able to put it together in five ten minutes and hasn't fallen apart yet so that's great but it holds 16 controllers. It basically looks like a Christmas tree and spins around so you can have good use of space. You can put it off in a corner, still have access to all of your controllers. It's got um, 
additional add-ons that you can get for it so that it can hold Wiimotes or nunchucks or and then at the top you can put it get an add-on for it that will hold your your headset and mic um just a really neat way to display controllers in a utilitarian type of way so I think I'm going to use that for my wired controllers. It doesn't have any mechanism to charge wireless controllers. So uh, I think I'm just going to use it for my old retro stuff and uh, be a nice way to just prompt discussion as well. If people are looking at it and spinning it and wondering, what is this controller? What is a 3DO? And I'll say it's the greatest game system you've never played. (laughs) Is, now, does it account for the wires in the way that you hoped it would? In the last episode, you were talking about that you might kind of ball them up and put them kind of in the core of the tree, so to speak. Is that kind of how it works? Or? Yeah, it, it, it really is. You can. It's almost like you can wrap the wire around the prongs that come out that the that hold the controller itself. So you okay. can kind of wrap the controller cord around that, sit the controller in front of it, and that almost serves to prop it up and display it a little better. Nice. Um, yeah, so it really works pretty nicely. Um, I... Definitely recommend it. It's it's a little expensive. Um, I mean, it is pretty well constructed. It doesn't look like it's going to break or anything. It looks like it's probably... I can't tell if it's 3D printed or mold made created with a mold, but it's pretty heavy-duty plastic. Um, so it, it must be mold-injected. Hmm. Um, and it basically comes shipped in, you know, flat, and you, it's like some assembly required, but it's very easy. Tab A, slot B kind of put together with one one big metal rod that goes all the way through the center to kind of bind everything together. Nice. Mold injected like a penicillin shot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm a nerd. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're just a regular Madame Curie. <laughs> she did the wax museum, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cured all the wax. And, I think so. Yeah. yeah that's, what, that's how that worked. Oh, man. What else yeah. did you get? Uh, other than that, I, I've been going back to trying to complete some of the sets that I've just been straggling on. I picked up a few in television games over the last week. Uh, I got Pac-Man, uh, Defender, some uh, arcade classics. One of my favorite arcade games, Dig Dug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Blockade, Run- Blockade Runner and uh space armada and the copy of space armada is one is a variant that i've been looking for since i started collecting in television and going down that path uh it's a red boxed version of the game so while mattel had the in television license before they folded it and sold it off to uh the company that became in television corp they the games that they released first party games were all the color of the box designated what genre the game was so blue game blue boxed games were space shooters um green box games were like gambling games um orange game boxed games were educational games things like that red box games were just like generic action games well there were two games space battle and space armada that were released in both red boxes and blue boxes i think the red box came first and then they decided on classifying creating the space genre so i the space armada version the, the space battle game is really common in both 
both red and blue boxes. But the Space Armada red box is extremely rare, and very rarely have I seen it pop up for sale. Uh, managed to score an amazing deal on it. It popped up. I don't think the seller knew that it was anything other than just a regular copy of Space Armada, which goes for like 10 to 15 bucks you know, all day long. Um, so... Hmm. Managed to hop right on that and add that to the collection. Pretty thrilled about it. And I am now down to just 11 games left for the Intellivision to cross that one off the complete bucket. Dang. Your uh, your 2018 goals are uh, are coming to fruition, as we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I know it's not 2019, but wasn't right. Intellivision one of your 2018 goals, or am the, I wrong on that? Nope, you are correct. The Intellivision okay. was, I actually started collecting for the Intellivision at the start of 2018. Okay. Um, came into the year not having a single Intellivision game and managed to get pretty close. But, uh, so now it's a 2019 goal, <laughs> which we'll get into later on. That's the great thing about goals. They can just be stretched, yeah. stretched further, yeah. Exactly. Like yeah, just like life. You got to get used to failure. Wow. Uh, I would ask if you wanted to talk about it, but I'm afraid you'll say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I'm a dick. Okay. What else? Anything else have you picked up? I think that... No, I think that pretty much much covers it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, For me, just the 8-bit anthology that we talked about, 8-bit adventure anthology that we talked about earlier, which has... I don't know if we actually said all the games. I think we did. Maybe Shadowgate, Uninvited, Deja Vu was a three-pack of those three uh, 8-bit games, which were originally on... Uh, various PCs, I think, probably, but I played them on the NES as well yeah. when I played them. I played Deja Vu specifically. I haven't even actually played the other two at all. Um, all I know is that Shadowgate has a really horrible, like, uh, you're tied to a chair dynamite kind of scene. I think that's Shadowgate. Uh, and maybe it's uninvited, but it's one of the two that's uh, sort of the bane of every child's uh, childhood. So <laughs> I'm going to try to work my way around that if I ever play that game. But I wanted to ask before I sneeze, <coughs> well, after I sneeze, um, they, they, this is technically called the 8-Bit Adventure Anthology Volume 1. I don't know of too many other 8-Bit and adventure game, like point-and-click adventure-style games that, that would make up a Volume 2. Like, I, Are you yeah. aware of any? Well, I, I have to think that they would source from you know, the 8-Bit computer world because really thinking through like the, the Nintendo library, at least here in the U.S., there really weren't very many. Maybe like King's Quest V, Princess Tomato in the Salad Kingdom, and Nightshade. I I think those are really, that's about, and I think I'm even stretching Princess Tomato in the Salad Kingdom. I don't think it's really a pure point-and-click adventure. I haven't played that, but I think it's got some kind of action elements to it. Um, The Sega Master System, the only adventure game, I believe, is another King's Quest. It's the remake of King's Quest 1, which was uh, King's Quest, Quest for the Crown. And again, that's only here in the U.S. I know there's a ton of Sega Master System games uh, in Brazil and Europe and and Japan that I just am not clued into at all. But um, if we expand to more of the PC, the 8-bit computers, I'm sure there's got to be some stuff that yeah. that came out on, you know, like Amiga and um, Commodore and stuff like that. I wonder if they would upgrade anything if they if they did those ports. Because the Amiga, if I remember correctly, had a very limited... And remember correctly, I didn't have one, but if I know correctly, um, had a very limited color palette, like three kind of... It's almost like a primary 
palette, color palette based system, I believe, and very much like a, um, there, there just wasn't a lot of, of variety that you could have. It was kind of the screen, um, the screen itself had like three colors that you could play with and they were all kind of in the same area of the screen. So it was almost like having a permanent, uh, uh, vector graphics overlay kind of thing. Like that was kind of part of the screen, I believe. Um, but I don't know if, if it was that or maybe it was one of the Commodores, but I'm pretty sure it was the Amiga. Hmm. The C64 had just a ton of, I mean, it had a massive library. And I think a lot of the Sierra games were released on Commodore 64, like King's Quest and Police Quest and space, all of the quests, Space Quest. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's probably a rich adventure game library if they just look to the Commodore 64. Well, that's where they'll have to go then. Yeah. Damn them. So, yeah. All right. But speaking of adventures, now that, that is a transition for you. <laughs> I, I just wanted to mention a real life adventure that I went on this, uh, the last few weeks here, actually. It's been probably uh, close to a month, really. I shipped a boatload of games to our good buddy up in the Great White North, Mr. Dean Lasagna at Round 2 Gaming. Round underscore two underscore gaming, I think, right? Round yes. 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 Very big fan of the underscores, that Dean Lasagna. <laughs> I think someone had the without underscores and yeah. was not able. Yeah. yeah. That jerk. If yeah. you're listening, jerk, give it to I, Dean. Come on. I just kind of like to think that he likes underscores. Maybe so. I right. went through a big underscore phase at one point. You could have been a programmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I sent him a bunch of games. It was like 200 and some games. Wow. Two gigantic boxes. Um, he basically went through a, about a year ago while I was preparing to go to, uh, it was either Chicago for Chicartridge Con, or it might have been to Milwaukee for the Midwest Gaming Classic last year. In the lead-up to going, we had a thread on cartridgeclub.org forums talking about who was going, who was going to be there, what people were bringing, and just kind of a, a, a swap. So people could post what they had, what they if anybody wanted somebody to bring something to, you know, to, to deal on while, while we were all there. So I posted a bunch of stuff that was in this room where I podcast here that I'm cleaning out. It's my overflow room currently, which is all the stuff that I have for sale. Um, posted a bunch of pictures of that and did some trades and stuff at the at the event and didn't think too much up more of it. And Dean shot me a, a text on, on or a direct message on Twitter and said, hey, you know, I think uh, I finally got a chance to look at your post and found a few things that I want. And then it was like, Scroll, 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 scroll. Dean doesn't do anything half-assed. He's like true. He dives into life and takes that sucker by the horns. And whether it's travel or game collecting or being an awesome human being, he crushes all of those things. Staying young, he recently did his 2009 to 2019 like challenge thing. Looks younger than he did in 2009. Oh my god, it's insane. I I actually was. Looking at, I was just surfing YouTube earlier this week, and I went back and I looked at, like, the first videos of some of our friends. So I went back and looked at the first videos that Mighty Q-Dog and Mrs. Q-Dog had posted, and went back and played some of the first videos that Dean had posted. Because Dean doesn't do much in the video space anymore, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I noticed 
what got me into it is I noticed he had like 1800 subscribers or something on YouTube. And I was like, well, wait a minute. He doesn't actually have any videos. And so I went back and from like, you know, up until like 2014, he was actually posting videos on the reg hmm. and looking back at him and, and just seeing like, Oh my God, he's like the same dude. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Yeah. But anyway, I sent him these two gigantic boxes of video games and a lot of them. So he, it, it, they really ran the gamut. It was some Nintendo games, some Jaguar games, some PS4 games, Vita, Atari Lynx, just all over the place. He actually posted a, a picture of everything I sent him on Twitter. Go check it out if, if you're interested in seeing what he picked up. But a lot of this, the newer stuff especially was factory sealed. And so, well, I, I wrapped everything up in bubble tape, bubble wrap, and boxed everything real nicely. Sent it up there in two separate gigantic boxes. And it gets to the border and just grinds to a halt on progress. And it sits in customs and sits in customs. And finally I get this call from this really, really mean Canadian lady from UPS. Wait, mean Canadian? That doesn't make sense. I know. It's it kind of boggles my mind. <laughs> she calls me and she starts yelling at me that I need to provide receipts for everything that I'm sending. Oh my god! <laughs> and I'm like, lady, I'm I'm sending all this stuff to my buddy in Canada, and she's like, no, you're not. This is a, this is a retail operation, and you need to produce receipts, and you need to produce them soon, or you're going to forfeit everything to the crown. And I was like, whoa, whoa, the crown? <laughs> that seems a little harsh. Like, this is North America, lady. I don't know if you know, we don't have any royalty over here. I would love to imagine the queen just like playing some Mega Man three, right? Exactly. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, she she'd have to do it one handed because she's got to have that whole like royal wave oh. thing going on. Well, I mean, she could. Uh, okay, let's look at an Xbox game, Jurassic Park. They have the adaptive controller now. So. That's true. That's <laughs> true. Oh man, do you imagine the the marketing campaign Microsoft would have if they get that old bird up there you know, oh, with man. the adaptive controller? <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> All prim and proper. <laughs> but finally, I mean, after going through, I think, five or six different customs agents, I don't know if they were customs agents or if they were UPS employees. I think they might have been UPS employees. Finally got to a guy who was very helpful and was just like, just tell me they're worth like five bucks a piece and, and we'll be done. <laughs> I was like, perfect. Why wouldn't the first six people I talked to tell me this? <laughs> yeah. Did they even ask you like what the value was? Like, no. Did they, was that even a question? Not at all. It was oh, just see, like, you yeah. need to provide receipts. It was like, these things have been sitting in my guest bedroom for years. Some of them, how, how would, what kind of receipt do you want? Like I could scribble something and send it to you and, it was it was a nightmare. If that I checks was a terrified. box on their checklist, they probably would agree to that. Yeah, exactly. I was terrified that Dean's gigantic boxes of games would end up being, you know, destroyed with uh, you know a bunch of shipments of heroin and meth. It didn't help <laughs> that in, during the same time period, I started watching a show on Netflix called like. Uh, front lines or something that's all about customs agents at the border between the U S and Canada. And, um, 
how they basically look for, you know, drug paraphernalia and drugs being shipped across the border back and forth. And so, and talking about how they're destroying every, all of these packages. So that really didn't cause me a lot of, uh, sleepful nights. So you're telling me you have a friend in Canada who is paying money for Rhythm Heaven on the DS? That, that's what you're telling me. This is a drug operation. No, I don't, I don't buy, buy it. it. I don't, I don't buy, buy it. it. Crack that game open. There's heroin inside. I know it. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's just a game. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, this we, guy needs these games. He, he's not doing well. I can tell. Uh, let's give him the games. Uh, we, you know, we should. There should be like a whole... Uh, subculture, like, so the whole thing of, with the Cartridge Club uh, is that, you know, we're from all over the place and, and, you know, we come together every once in a while and celebrate games and it's fun. But this is the second story, and I won't rehash mine. This isn't a way for me to inject my own story into the conversation, but this is the second time there has been, like, a crazy trying to bring games across borders or, a, like, situation. There's got to be, like, this growing, like, I don't know. There's got to be more stories like this out there. So if anyone not in the cartridge club even is listening, like tell us your stories about trying to ship games distances and uh, anything that may have come of that. I'd love to, I'd love to hear them. So yeah, yeah. let us know, let us know and tweet at us at MOU podcast. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the stories next episode. If it's good enough, if it's good enough. (laughs) Yes. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So now Dean has got the monumental task of cataloging all of this stuff and adding it to his collection uh, database. That's uses, half the fun, though, right? It is. It really is. Dean uses the same collection software that I use called Collectors with a Z. Um, it's amazing. It's fantastic. I've reviewed it in in previous episodes, so if you're interested, go back and check our back catalog. Yeah. Speaking of which, actually, one of the things I just recently did with mine, um, I do have an app that I keep track of the games. It's not nearly robust as Collector. So, yeah, if you're a true collector, definitely that one is the most robust. I just use one called My Game Collection. It's an app. Um, and I recently just added all of the games I pre-ordered and all of the games I've just, like, heard about and sound cool to the wish list section. Uh, and I've labeled certain ones I pre-ordered as, as, as pre-ordered, that sort of stuff. So now I have an easy way to access all of the games that I'm waiting patiently to be mailed to me. Um, and I've never had that before. So it's, it's fun and exciting for me. Nice. Mention that. Yeah. It's a nice little way of using the label feature for what it's probably not intended to do. So, yeah. So yeah. you're just a budding collector. Shut your mouth. Just, just a little baby collector, all written, ready to <laughs> spread your wings and fly. Yeah, I'm still pooping in my collector diapers. No, that's, uh, <laughs> just my my getting... walls are too full of of old cigar butts and cigar rings to uh, <laughs> to have shelves on them. So I'm sorry. Just getting ready to burst your way out from that protective overlord and bust out on your own and become your own person. So in this analogy, let's really walk through this. Um, and this 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 analogy, I'm in a womb of some sort before <laughs> I actually join the collecting world. What is this womb made of? Describe this pre-collecting womb, if you will. Well, it's sort of like this giant conglomeration of international publishing powerhouses. <laughs> wow, that mom is a whore. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of stuff in there. Okay. All right. Oh, we are just terrible, terrible, terrible You're... transitions. <laughs> Well, this mom was very good at transitions. In fact, she was. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's it's just all of it. It's it's her destiny, I suppose. It is. It is your destiny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, so with that, there mm-hmm. we'll just transition right into current events. Let's do it. Where <laughs> our first story is Bungie going out on their own, forging their way into the the cold dark <laughs> night all alone without Activision Blizzard to keep them company. Bungie just likes to like leave giant publishers at the altar. Yeah. Um, just gets y- around. <laughs> Bungie, Bungie, like the, like well, the neighborhood to, bicycle, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm out of it, but uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the whole story itself. But but you mentioned Bungie sort of jumping around. What's their big thing besides Halo? I know it's been Destiny, I guess, obviously, but like, yeah, those are the two, right? That's, like, that's there's it, not yeah. something else there, right? Okay, no, I, I mean they proceed. they just, basically made Halo and Halo that wasn't called Halo because of licensing. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're big they're big deals, I understand, but um it seems I don't know. I guess talk a little bit about the story, but like I, I just I don't know the reasoning. I think everybody's happy about it, but I'm not sure I fully understand everything about it, you know? Yeah. So I mean they they've they had been part of Microsoft. They started out as just a in indie studio as they were developing Halo and then got sort of absorbed i guess a little bit by microsoft i don't know if they ever were actually owned fully by microsoft or if it was just a a partnership but then after several iterations of halo bungie broke away from microsoft and immediately got into bed with activision blizzard um and activision blizzard actually owned bungie at that point i believe and just this past week it uh Bungie announced that they were leaving Activision Blizzard and Activision Blizzard was actually selling the publishing rights for the Destiny franchise back to Bungie. So Activision Blizzard's effectively out of the Destiny game and immediately Wall Street did not react well to this. The the stock uh, Activision Blizzard publicly traded, the stock immediately plummeted 12% from 51 bucks to $45. That's a that's a huge huge loss of value for for a company to absorb. Um and actually afterwards a couple of days later uh a bunch of a group of shareholders filed suit against Activision Blizzard claiming fraud. And I'm still not quite clear on what the the fraud suit what the meat of the fraud suit entails. Um, it's, it's tied to insider trading. Um, but I'm not clear on what the actual allegations are. Um, but it seems like most of the reaction on the internet fans and journalists are largely thinking this is a positive thing. Uh, they think there's going to be more freedom for Bungie to operate since they they won't have their their evil corporate overlords at Activision Blizzard uh looming over them but honestly like i don't know that Bungie has really ever done anything all that wild and crazy i mean mm-hmm. there there was never anything about halo other than the fact that it was it was just well done and and worked right in a time when that really was new and exciting yeah in the in 3d shooters for especially for a console that's that was the big thing they were console 3d shooter that console first per, well, i think it was first person wasn't it wasn't halo first person yeah no it was a third yep. but yep. yeah it was a console version of something that pcs have had for a while and that was sort of the big thing um 
it was a shooter that consoles didn't up until that point really do that well and they did it really well and it was very it was polished it was not it was good it had some great mechanics it had a driving mechanic that you know that's sort of just an, an additional thing to add to it so um yeah but yeah i like that they did that they did destiny which was sort of a i never played destiny but the people i know who've played it really enjoyed it for its sort of it had a bit of charm a bit of humor to it but it was uh online and and it was a big deal and for a while anyway and i don't know i played a lot of destiny one when it first came out i played it mostly single player i did do a couple of dungeon runs and and raids and stuff with a few friends but i really played it mostly single player and it the, it just felt to me too mmo like where it's grindy and you go to the moon every day and you do your daily quest and you farm these stupid moon shards things that you can never get enough of and have to keep going back over and over and over and it just seems like busy work to me Mm -hmm. um and i tend to think that there's a lot of risk here for bungie acting on their own right with with being part of activision blizzard sure you might be able to not take as many risks or you might have less i guess quote unquote freedom to do what you want but you also don't have you're not as big of a slave to the constant need for new revenue coming in the door from multiple properties you know if you're bungie and you really are a one-trick pony you've got a new destiny game every couple of years and then in the middle of that you're really kind of living on in-game purchases and stuff like that you know you don't have a nice smooth cash flow like you would with a conglomerate that has uh bungie releasing a game this month and the call of duty studio releasing a game next month and blizzard releasing a game the month after and blizzard having the world of warcraft cash flow stream from subscriptions every single month um, I just wonder how much, how how long it will be until Bungie has to find themselves partnering again with another large studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if I, I largely agree with you because um, you already mentioned that Bungie was with Microsoft and they went to Activision shortly after breaking from Microsoft. I wonder if there was some courting during the relationship with Microsoft from Activision so that. So that basically Activision proposed something better. They were like, hey, we got something better. You should come with us. Bungie, having been acquired by Microsoft long ago and really only – that's really the only team they've known, is like, okay, yeah, these people are selling now something that sounds really cool. Let me go over there. They went over there. They were with Activision for a while. Things are going well. Now they've had a taste of two different uh, stews, so to speak. Um, they're leaving here, I would imagine, for a different reason. I don't think they could be courted by uh, a third company in the same way. Um, they would be smarter than that, I would think. So I, I feel like it's got to be Bungie has these two IPs that they either feel they can do something with that Activision is not letting them do, and therefore they want to leave. And we have to also think that Act- we also have to consider Activision. It seems anyway let go of them pretty easily. Like I don't know mm-hmm. what obviously all the all the the legalities are. I don't know what kind of money transitioned hands and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how much. I didn't read how much. Um the rights to uh, to Destiny were actually acquired for by uh, Bungie. But um, Activision was essentially cool with them leaving. So it tells me that, like, if, if there was... So Activision either, A, saw that there was nothing to milk out of the Destiny franchise anymore. They didn't see it as a, as a cash cow. They didn't see anything out of the Halo. Although Microsoft probably still owns Halo. I don't know if they do or not, but... Yeah, yeah Microsoft so. basically at the split 
Microsoft got the rights to to Halo and and Bungie moved on to Destiny. So yeah. really, at this point, they 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 aren't even a two trick pony; they're a one trick pony. Mm-hmm. So they just have Destiny, really, and and that's all they have. The only reason they would be leaving, I would think, is that they had ideas for Destiny that Activision didn't appreciate or didn't want. Meaning, if Activision releases something, it's either going to be a dramatically different kind of Destiny, uh, something that maybe plays a lot of fan service and fans actually enjoy, gets back to something that maybe has been missing from late later fan uh, Destiny installments and DLCs, things like that. Or they're going to co- truly do something completely different. They're tired of Destiny. They want to do something, and Activision is saying, no, we need you to keep just churning out destiny crap and they say you know what i i just that's not going to work it's not going to be profitable activision says you're right maybe it's not going to be profitable if if you don't do destiny we don't have any use for you and so now bungie is going to be doing something totally different and they're going to spend a few years doing on it so i I don't imagine that we would really know much or see anything from bungie for a few years and when we do it's going to be something i would imagine pretty different that's just my hunch i'm not a i'm not a games journalist i'm i'm just an enthusiast but that's my hunch i mean i have to think though they're they're bungie is actively buying out the destiny rights from activision so if they thought that they wanted to do something else and break from destiny i would think that they would just do what they did with halo and say look yeah you guys can you guys can have the ip we're we're out you know we're doing something else hmm Maybe it was like, it, would you think there would ever be a situation where Activision would say, okay, you guys can leave, you guys can break your contract. I don't know if it broke a contract or, or if it was aligned with contract renegotiations, but if it's breaking the contract, could they say, yeah, you guys can go, but as part of it, you have to buy Destiny from us because we, we won't do anything with it unless you, you know, we're not going to do anything with it, so we want to make money off of this parting. or so. I, I don't know. That seems weird, but I don't it know. It could be. There, there's like a concept of a breakup fee. Anytime there's one party wants to leave a, a contract that's already been entered into. You see this a lot in mergers and acquisitions. So, um, like, if a merger gets shot down by the Department of Justice or the... Federal Communications Commission or whatever you know, governing bodies, body or bodies happen to be over that industry um, in terms of saying, no, we think this is uh, going to create a monopoly or whatever. We're not going to allow this merger. A lot of merger deals have a breakup fee that's already included in that contract to say, look, if one party wants out of this, fine, they have to pay the other party such and such, or they have to do this set of things before you know, they can get out of this contract and be free and clear. So I guess it, it's entirely possible that that could have been part of you know, them being let free. Hmm. Yeah. Before you got to break up, you got to do butt stuff. That's what, that, that's the rule. That is the rule. I mean, <laughs> every, everybody knows that. <laughs> that's awful. Um, <laughs> if, uh, if you have any thoughts, listeners out there about this whole Bungie Activision breakup, why not tweet at us at yeah. MOU podcast? Let Do us it. know what you think. Let us know. Do you think that's good? Do you think it's bad? Uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts. Join if, the convo. If you, if you have thoughts on butt stuff, go ahead and send that directly to at VG Collectaholic. Mm, wait a minute. Yep. Uh, next uh, story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh. Speaking of butt stuff, uh, Pinkerton? Pink? Uh, I don't know. Something's in there. Like color pink is all I'm p- really trying to... Pink, pink eye? Pink eye uh, Yeah. That's how you get pink eye, right? I think it is butt stuff with a... Butt with stuff. 
With, yeah. <laughs> I got to stop saying both. <laughs> it's fun to say, though. I mean, objectively, it's fun to say. Guys, listening, listening, anyone listening right now, uh, say it just out loud. You have headphones on. No one can hear you talk. That's how headphones work. Just say, <laughs> just say butt stuff and you'll smile. I promise. <laughs> Try it. If you don't smile, send a picture of your frown to MOU Podcast. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag butt stuff frown. <laughs> the, the algorithms might check that uh but <laughs> hey you know what it, it's fine I'm, I'm comfortable with the algorithms taking away our audience if it was because our audience hashtagged the word butt stuff round <laughs> i'm totally fine with that <laughs> that's worth it yep. totally worth it i'll never know for sure if that happens so i just have to assume <laughs> our audience is much bigger and it's only we're not seeing that because everyone's hashtagging butt stuff round so. yeah i think that's that's the way it works it's fair it's fair. yeah yeah <laughs> tell us about frowning. Uh, uh, tell well, us about this next story. This is this is going to be your. I feel like this is going to be your thing. All you listeners out there, this is. I feel like is where Scott's going to drop some goddamn knowledge on us. I hope I'm not setting things up too much, but I feel like you got a lot to say about this. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's that's a lot of hype. I don't think I can live up to that. But hey, we'll we'll give it a whirl. We'll give it a whirl. <laughs> so I guess. One company who's frowning, well, two companies really who are frowning are Rockstar and Take-Two Interactive, who are both being sued for Red Dead Redemption 2 by the real-life Pinkertons. So the Pinkerton National Detective Agency is an actual historical group who rose to prominence in the U.S. here during the uh, 19th, the late 1800s into the mid 1900s and turns out they're actually still around. So they, they are now, they're no longer the Pinkerton national detective agency. Now they are known as Pinkerton consulting and investigations, and they have filed suit against take two and rockstar claiming trademark infringement for the central use of the Pinkerton's name and the badge likeness throughout the game, red dead redemption two. And they're basically seeking to be paid off. They want to, they want royalties for the use of their name and likeness. Two of the main prote or two of the main antagonists in Red Dead Redemption Two, uh, and Red Dead Redemption One actually are Pinkerton agents, and they're they're tracking um, you know the main character throughout the game. Um, so I think maybe it's important to to set the story up just to go back and talk a little bit about who the Pinkertons were and do a little bit of a, a history lesson. So the Pinkerton national detective agency was founded in 1850 in Chicago by Alan Pinkerton and Alan Pinkerton had actually rose to a little bit of fame by thwarting an assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln. Apparently wasn't very good at sticking to his job. However, um, (laughs) Lincoln actually ended up hiring Pinkerton and his new Pinkerton organization to run his personal security during the Civil War. So effectively, the Pinkertons were really the first Secret Service agents. They were kind of the um, the ideal for what would become the Secret Service. And now while they got their start kind of doing that, they actually really rose to prominence and and sort of infamy in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s when 
they were really more of a a private security force, almost a private military contractor. And they were hired by a lot of the gigantic business magnates of the time, people like Andrew Carnegie, uh, to basically disrupt all of the growing labor movements. So here, this was at a time during the Industrial Revolution where uh, the labor movement was really starting to take off. There were terrible working conditions and, and people were starting to band together and oppose it. Well, the the business magnates knew they had just a ton of money to lose if unions were able to ban. So the Pinkertons were actually hired to, um, you know, depending on your perspective, they were either a private security force hunting down criminals and keeping the peace, or they were union breaking thugs in the pocket of big business. So just kind of take your pick there, whichever way you tend to lean. And for um, those who played uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, also hired by Leviticus Cornwall, um, who was a big, rich dude, essentially, in that game. So actually, I didn't realize that the Pinkertons were hired by uh, corporate uh, magnates, as you said. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Just wanted to yeah. touch in there. But, yeah, that's, that's Yeah, absolutely. And so then there's also the, another Wild Wild West um, tie-in for the Pinkertons as well, because they – this separately from their their union busting stuff which was really more east coast pinkerton operations it was in philadelphia and new york and kind of all up and down the east coast but in the wild west pinkertons were actually hired by government organizations towns as almost bounty hunters so they were hired to track and apprehend some of the kind of some of the outlaws who were popping up and a lot of the celebrity outlaws many of whom we we still know today people like jesse james butch cassidy the sundance kid the reno gang um they were largely you know tasked with tracking down and, and hunting down these uh, celebrity outlaws so i mean it's it's like most organizations, you've got good side and bad side, and and a lot of both of those, the the positive and the negative, have been used in historical fiction really ever since, going all the way back to you know, the Louis L'Amour Western novels of the the mid nineteen hundreds. Um, so. With that in mind, now we can take a look at the the actual suit that's going on. So first, the Pinkertons sued Rockstar alleging trademark infringement. Well, quickly thereafter, Rockstar countersued and basically looked is asking the court to throw the Pinkertons suit out and basically go for a, a declaratory judgment against them. And... Rockstar issued a statement in their uh, in their suit uh, filing that says, quote, historical fiction, television, movies, plays, books and games would suffer greatly if trademark claims like the Pinkertons could even possibly succeed. The Pinkertons cannot use trademark law to own the past, end quote. And really, this kind of gets at one of the the underlying themes of what this this court case is really all about it's really a case of trademark law against the first amendment right it's it it's we've talked about this very battle between i intellectual property and uh first amendment rights fair use a lot you know over the the course of this podcast it's it's a central theme in um 
social media in general, whether you're a YouTuber or a streamer, the concepts of intellectual property and fair use are really indelibly tied to your art form. So I think that this this case really has a larger component to it and a larger potential impact than a lot of people are realizing. So upon Rockstar's countersuit, the the president of the Pinkertons, Jack Zaharan, responded claiming that the depiction of the Pinkertons is as villainous thugs is inaccurate. He, quote, Zaharan says, history tells a different story, end quote. And I'm not quite so sure that it does completely. I mean, we already talked about some of the, the thuggery that the Pinkertons were were accused of um and they were even they were even frowned upon so badly that in 19 in 1883 the u.s federal government passed the anti-pinkerton act and (laughs) it basically it specifically forbid government and government agencies from hiring anyone who also worked for the pinkerton agency due to their (laughs) tactics so i mean i think the i think zaharan is really taking some some liberties with his uh, his downplaying of the portrayal of the Pinkertons in the game, and doesn't just... he also though? Isn't there also a problem though? Because he's sort of deviating from the central argument of of trademark infringement, and he's trying to say, hey, the problem here is that we're being seen as villainous. When really, what he should be arguing is the problem here is that they're just taking our trademark. They're using our trademark, but to try to argue instead that we're villainous, now that's a different argument to counter against. We can say, no, objectively, you you have been villainous in the past. Therefore, all of your arguments are rendered moot sort of thing. It's a, it's, it's a dangerous statement to make. He's deviating from, I think, what should be the central message. Um, that's just the way I see it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it really, it almost kind of blurs the lines between what is a trademark claim and what is a defamation yeah, claim. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're, you're, I don't know if he's trying to establish a case for defamation if the if the trademark claim were to fall short and not mm. not be you know looked on um favorably by the court but i i really think this is this is a big hill to climb for the pinkertons i th- i think i've seen a lot of um obviously a lot of game media that are are thinking that uh the pinkertons are you know just this it's a cash grab by by a squatter company which it really isn't it's it's the same company that was the pinkertons it's not like some patent troll or ip troll this is an actual company that's actually still operating um it's more the the pinkertons are more still the pinkertons than atari is atari right Mm -hmm. um but i think where the pinkertons have some problems is that you've they've really almost become uh sort of a, a kleenex type trademark right where it's it's used so so ubiquitously throughout historical fiction and in in history texts in general so and both portrayed in a good light as heroes and as the the bounty hunters who went out and and fought against people like Jesse James and as villains, as you know, groups of thugs who were union breakers. I mean, the the list of appearance in in for profit fiction, whether it's Hollywood or novels or video games, is long and and really goes back, like I say, uh, you know, almost a hundred years. Um, 
Louis L'Amour, the the Western novelist, they appeared in his books. Clive Cussler, the the adventure novelist, appeared in his books. Um, even even in uh, Sir Arth- Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes novel, his last Sherlock Holmes novel, as a matter of fact, The Valley of Fear, uh, one of the characters is a Pinkerton agent. Um, movies there was the long riders and american outlaws both of which were about uh jesse and jane jesse and frank james and featuring the uh you know the pinkertons hunting for them um another rockstar and take two you know game not rockstar but take two bioshock infinite the protagonist in that booker dewitt is a former pinkerton agent he was a particularly thuggy one as well uh the deadwood series has Numerous antagonist characters all throughout the series are hiring Pinkerton agents. So I think for the Pinkertons to step in now and say, okay, now we want to go ahead and and enforce our intellectual property, that's where I think they're going to have a real problem. Because the court can look back and say, well, you didn't seem to have a problem with it for almost a century. And this goes back to something that we've talked about in... Uh, you know, when we're talking about what is the danger of people modding things, what is the danger of um, other companies being able to use the Nintendo logo? What is the danger of other companies selling something or utilizing something in a public space that they didn't come up with? You know, even if, if a game is out there that features a, a specific character, if that game's no longer sold, that IP is still owned by somebody and letting others use it for their own ends and their own means really dilutes your own ownership over that trademark and that intellectual property. So I think if I had to bet, um, obviously this, I think from a legal perspective, this is going to be a really fascinating case to, to watch. I think, if I had to bet on it, my money is on Rockstar and Take Two. I don't think the Pinkertons will win, and it's not just because of the the prior use that I mentioned. I think so. This is really uh, uh, pitting trademark rights versus first Amer- First Amendment fair use rights, and my prediction is that if it comes down to just a head to head trademark rights versus fair First Amendment fair use rights. The court usually takes a look at two competing valid interests and then says, what are the other potentially unintended consequences of siding with one side or the other? The unintended consequences of siding with the Pinkertons is really that nothing changes about trademark law and the owners of a trademark are just able to collect their royalties. On the other hand, If the court finds, I mean, the the unintended consequences in a negative light, however, are that what it's really done is it said, yes, you as a trademark holder, an intellectual property holder, have dominion over history, right? And if you look at describing history, if any type of history can't be told 
without including, or if it has to be told without including any kind of trademarks, without including any kind of company names, without including any kind of company likenesses in historical fiction, or even in a textbook, which is by and large a for-profit industry, it becomes virtually impossible to convey the history to convey history from the 20th century onward, because starting with the 20th century, everything is a brand. Everything is tied to a company. Everything is society itself is intertwined with products and the brands that make them. Imagine trying to tell a history of the 21st century without using the word Apple or (laughs) iPhone or Microsoft. It, It cannot be done in a meaningful way. So, to allow a trademark holder the to lord their name over someone who is trying to convey historical fact and a historical timeline, I think runs counter to public policy. So I think that's really ultimately where, especially if this case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court level, I think that's a huge component of why a Supreme Court level um, trial would end in in take two and Rockstar prevailing. What about the fact that you, you mentioned this being historical fiction, but really, if we think back to the other examples you gave, like Bioshock Infinite, for example, definitely not historical fiction, um, fiction for fiction's sake. And that particular Pinkerton agent was, as you said, particularly thuggy. So that's an example where it's not historical fiction. It's not trying to tap into the history of something to really build out a world. It's entirely fiction. Do you think the courts are going to have to mind the difference between what can what's considered historical and therefore possibly of greater use to society versus fiction or that is it an argument versus like what the, what the merit to society is of historical fiction versus non-historical fiction um you know it, it's possible i think the usually when a court rules they tend to rule in a very narrow scenario they tend to say in the given the facts of the case in this particular instance, we find that. So mm. that they're very careful to not make huge car, you know, huge swaths, carve huge swaths of legal territory with a single ruling. Mm-hmm. And so that's where this particular facts of a case are very crucial. Had this case been about Bioshock Infinite, I think the public policy argument goes away. Gotcha. And I think that the Pinkertons would have had a much, much more likely chance of winning this exact same case if the facts of the case were about Bioshock Infinite rather than about Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, so a lot of times you see cases that end up going up to a Supreme Court. And I'm not saying that this case will. I'm not even saying that this case will end up going to trial at all. It could very well um, it could very well just settle. And ultimately... If I'm if I'm Rockstar or Take Two, I want to think very thoroughly about what these unintended consequences of this case might be, because while at its at its core, this case is about trademark and royalties, it does have such a larger question baked into it about how far do trademark How far does intellectual property go before you encroach into the public domain of history and the public domain of fair use, right? If you 
I don't think it's a huge leap to say that if this case goes fully through and ultimately ends up having a ruling and that ruling ultimately being for Rockstar and Take Two, I don't think it's a huge stretch to go from there to fair use is basically got precedent on a case for utilizing, you know, trademarks and things in a YouTube uh, stream or a Twitch stream, things like that, where that's really kind of a touchy un, we don't know where the borders of that law are today. And I Mm -hmm. think a case like this, given the facts of it could have widespread implications for fair use. Hmm. So if I were to, I'm going to throw out one more hypothetical and then we can move on because I know we're already at 930 here. Um, (laughs) I just made a timestamp in a, in a podcast that people will be listening to independent of the actual time. It's 930 uh, Central Time as I record this, 1030 uh, Scott's time. Anyway, the hypothetical I'll throw at you is let if I wanted to create historical fiction, uh, say, for Nintendo. You know, Nintendo's been around since 18, what, 1896 or something like that? I don't know, a long mm-hmm. time. Um, and I wanted to create historical fiction, but... You know, maybe I did dig up a story that that Nintendo was maybe not the best employer. And so I I fictionalized that a little bit. And I had, you know, some horrible working conditions in a Nintendo factory from 1890s. Um, Is there is there much is there enough of a parallel there to use that as sort of a proxy? And I know legally I I don't think or I think legally you wouldn't necessarily make those proxies. You don't really want to argue hypotheticals. But um, is there something different, inherently different about that than, say, a situation with the Pinkertons and... Because I would imagine that the the scenario I just described, it feels like it shouldn't be legally. I, I don't know. There's there's a feeling that like that shouldn't legally buy, but at the same time, I don't really know what the difference between that and the Red Dead Redemption Two situation would be. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it goes to how central the intellectual property in question is to the story being told. Okay. You know, in in your scenario. The, the, your story could be told with any with any company, any location, any time period, right? It's not really you're just choosing to put Nintendo on the on the company that this all is set in because that's where you want it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Pinkertons had a very high profile impact on American history for nearly a hundred years. They were in, in multiple geographies. They have become synonymous with, you know, with bounty hunters, with union breakers, with private security. The, the very name is, it, you, if you say Pinkerton to someone who knows anything about history, they're going to immediately know who you're talking about right mm. and and even a lot of people who don't know much about history and, and that's come from how ubiquitous they've been used in popular culture in movies tv novels comic books things like that um so i think that's really again it gets back to what are the facts of this particular case and i think that's really where you get into a difference with um how well known is the story of of the organization throughout history? It would be like um, the Yale Skull and Bone Society suing the 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 movie makers of the movie The Skulls, right? Mm-hmm. Because that movie very clearly depicts the the society at Yale in a very very negative light, but yet it's it's effectively just 
the setting for a story and it's a setting that everybody knows and it's a setting that a lot of people um you know it instantly evokes something that uh that the filmmakers are trying to convey hmm. that makes sense regardless regardless i think it's going to be fascinating to to watch this case f- unfold i really really hope it doesn't get settled out of court because i want to see how it unturn how it turns out <laughs> uh yes yes it might even uh, uh cause you some sort of mental tra- mental uh, uh strain a disorder well, even maybe one thing's for sure it certainly caused our listeners some mental disorder for the last i don't know half hour or oh. how long i was rambling not at all you bring you bring substance to this podcast that you don't get anywhere else you said so yourself we're a, we're a different kind of podcast so I think people, our audience, though possibly slim uh, and very attractive, I must say, um, mm. probably you are good looking people out there <laughs> uh, are probably uh, a very excited. They, they like that kind of stuff. I like that kind of stuff. So fuck them. How about that? Yeah. Fuck you, yeah. listeners. That's I right. enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, man. So <laughs> no, wait, come back, gentle listener. Come back. <laughs> Maybe I have the mental disorder. Um, and speaking of. So we talked uh, a bit about in a previous episode, a couple episodes back about the um World Health Organization classifying gaming disorder as an actual disorder. And at the time, it was, uh, you could go back and listen to our episode, but there were some valid episodes reasons for 24 it. and 25. Thank you. Oh, wow. Span two episodes then, huh? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, we talked about it and, and you know, no real conclusion there. But at the time, it was just, it was the first time that sort of uh, ga- a gaming disorder uh, was classified appropriately and or classified uh, uh, specifically. So... Recently, uh, the ESA, the Entertainment Software Association, came into talks with the World Health Organization World, World Health Organization about classification of gaming disorder as a disorder. Now, from the ESA's perspective, obviously, they want to uh, they don't want to cause alarm. They don't want to cause further restrictions on the sale of sale of games, all that sort of thing. From the World Health Organization, they want to you know do no harm. They want to be doctors. They want to be medical people. They want to approach it from a medical perspective. Um, so the ESA uh, acting president and CEO Stanley Perrier Louis, uh, he obviously cautioned against the diagnosis uh, of of gaming disorder being a, being an actual disorder. Um, the World Health Organization's Department for Mental Health and Substance Uses Doctor Shikar Saxena. Let's say I'm glad you got to say that. Uh, <laughs> I should have practiced before this. Uh, I don't read these articles. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> she, I can't read. So I don't, she, that's uh, why I keep you around. I, I'm glad that I can fail at the one thing you keep me around for. <laughs> um, she denied that uh, anything. She denied that the decision to classify gaming disorder was a sudden decision, which was sort of the implication of the CEO of the ESA CEO statement that, Hey, Hey, let's, let's take a step back. We shouldn't be all so rash about classifying this. She assured us that there was no sudden decision. It was a very conscious classification. Um, and so of course there's, there's just a meeting of the minds here to sort of further discuss that. And that's really the heart of this article. Um, the, as quoted in the article as defined by the ICD, um, gaming disorder is identified by seeing a pattern of consistent behavior where subjects demonstrate impaired control in terms of the onset, frequency, intensity, duration, termination, and context of the situation. And currently, right now, the World Health Organization is set to present um, this above this uh, this description um, in the uh, ICD is the um, classification diagnosis thing. It's basically the, the dictionary for medical 
things. The incontinence department? Thank you. Yes, it's probably what it is. I, th- right? I think that's what the it is. The incontinence classification department. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, So they're actually set to gather uh, at the World Health Assembly in May um, of this year. And if it's and if this classification is adopted by the World Health Organization members, it will be go into effect by uh, January first, twenty twenty two. Now, the truth is, I'm not a doctor by any means, believe it or not. But he plays uh, one on this podcast, a very poor one. Uh, so, I I just I think this is interesting because I don't know what the implication will be here if it will be further uh, labeling on games. You know, we 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 saw from the mid nineties. Um, uh, the, the senatorial uh, hearings regarding the ESR, what uh, the senatorial hearings, which eventually birthed what became the ESRB, um, where now we have labels and, and restrictions on games and things like that. We learned from that, or at least as a gamer, my perception of that was that that basically gave developers and, and publishers freedom to do whatever they want, because now all they do is have to classify it with a certain label. Um, I don't know if there's the same sort of parallel here where, hey, if, if we know, if we put a label that says, hey, this game is super addictive, does that mean now we're free to make addictive games without sort of any sort of moral uh, uh, issues with that or ethical issues with that or legal issues with that, I guess I should say. And, and does that even act as a as a marketing tool? Exactly. That's the point. Yeah. It's like now people I when I was a kid, I wanted to play the mature games because those are going to be the crazy gory ones. Absolutely. Now, I remember when there were two ends. What is it was MA 17? Mm-hmm. There were two games, Lethal Enforcers and and Mortal Kombat, and everybody, all the kids at school talked about them because it's purely for the fact that they were MA-17. And really, Lethal Enforcers, at least in my school, kind of rode the coattails of Mortal Kombat because they were linked by the fact that they were the first two MA-17 rated games. And I would argue that that newsbeat itself was was what probably spawned a lot of the excitement. Today, kids can go online and see video footage of any game they want to. So I don't know that the label itself is going to be enough for people to say, hey, I really want to play this game. Uh, Because again, they can see the violence if they want to on YouTube. They don't have to necessarily just look at the label and say, oh, that's what it is. Uh, So it really, what I'm probably saying from a grander perspective is that labels themselves like this are probably not as useful as they once were since we have so many other ways to see what a game is about and to read about a game. Um, but I also worry, will there be any sort of negative, from my perspective anyway, negative repercussions in terms of the conversation about gambling and loot boxes? I mean, if if, if addiction um, is closely related to uh, gambling and now we have a label that basically says this game is addictive, does that then make it easier to publish and distribute games that have loot boxes in them? And does it sort of render that, that conversation moot now that publishers can just say okay let me i just put an 18 and over you know label on this game and that's going to take care of it um i i i don't i don't know you know i, I really don't know I, I i truly believe that most parents don't pay attention to labels i don't know if that's true or not i'm just totally guessing about that so i don't know how much effect labels have and i think that neutering or the lack of neutering effect that labels have is something publishers could really play into so i don't know i will i will probably uh, follow this um, all the way through January 2022. So in January 2022, pay attention to the next episode. Or I hope not the next episode. Our, our next episode will not be, <laughs> despite what uh, At Trap Plays Games thinks. Yeah. On, you on suck. Twitters. At Trap Plays Games. 
Um, so yeah, if you have any thoughts or anything about the entertainment software um, uh, conversations about gaming disorder as an officially recognized diagnosis, uh, definitely let us know. Mou podcast on Twitter. That's uh, right. Yeah. So. So this this next story I'm I'm interested in because <laughs> I've always wanted to play this game. It's something that I never downloaded when it was first available and have always kind of kicked myself, especially when every time Halloween rolls around mm. and I get in the mood for a spooky game, I always wish that I would have gotten a chance to play Konami's PT. With playable teaser? Playable mm-hmm. trailer? What playable teaser, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now again, for I think the second or third time, a fan-developed remake of PT has emerged. This one uh, was developed by a a group called Radius Gordello. And they basically created from scratch in unreal engine uh, and are calling it unreal PT. And it includes like a VR mode um, and all the code from bottom to top has been rewritten. It doesn't use any of the original art assets from uh, the Konami, original Konami PT release. So it'll be interesting to see how Konami reacts to this. The The other um, the other fan remakes that Konami has shut down were did utilize either the, the sound assets or the art assets from the game. Um, now, legally speaking, in terms of just copyright law and intellectual property law they don't have to use actual assets from the game in order to be found to be violating intellectual property they're they're blatantly using the pt name they're making no bones about the fact that this is a pure remake of of pt so i mean in terms of from a legal perspective at least here in the us it's definitely infringes upon konami's intellectual property rights so it'll be interesting to see if if konami shuts this one down too but i think i think if you're interested in playing it play it now Mm -hmm. while it's while it's available because i i my guess is it goes away in the relatively near future unfortunately do you think konami as a company would if, if they didn't have any plans for this in the future would they be okay with leaving it out there just because it might you know, I guess sending a cease and desist order doesn't really cost a lot of money, so you could do that. That would probably scare them to take it down, and you might as well do that to protect any possible future plans you may have for developing something out. But if they, I guess the question is, if they were to shut it down, could we read into that that they have plans for the IP, or is it just that's standard protocol and they probably will? Yeah, it's just it's more or less standard protocol, and it's really even if they weren't planning on using PT, what that does is it creates a history of you defending your IP, Mm, which is it's at once both a deterrent and a, a point that Konami can make if they actually ever go to court on something, they can say, look, we, we've been out there. We've been actively defending our intellectual property, our trademarks, our copyrights, which is one of the struggles that, that going back to our previous story that the Pinkertons are going to face with why now, why have you, why are you now being upset with somebody infringing on your intellectual property rights when you apparently haven't been before? And I find, uh, so back to the point about you not having downloaded it and wishing that you had played it. Um, I, in the same way, uh, I would have loved to have played it. However, I have found that I watch 
let's plays of it on YouTube and they're short enough generally. And they're also varied enough too, that you can watch a few different let's plays and get a lot of different paths and, and experiences. And I find that that's still pretty freaking scary. So if you haven't done that, mm. uh, do it. It's pretty scary. They're that's out a good there, idea. So. I, I have not done that. That's a good idea. I'll do that. Yeah, definitely do that. And I don't know if, also from, even though it may be illegal to have this unreal PT out there. And again, the name unreal PT, if the asset similarities weren't enough, um, the name of the, thing is unreal pt that's pretty hard to to defend um the uh the i i wonder though how from a legal perspective yes he shouldn't do this but it's also i think a it's a pc based it's not like playstation 4 or anything so it probably has multiple uh ways to boot up the game so even so it could be something where it's it lives somewhere on the dark web or you know wherever it might be Mm -hmm. like so people could still maybe download it and play it without having to go necessarily through the steam launcher or something like that so steam might have to say yeah we have to take it down but there still might be other ways to get to it i would imagine depending on how uh legally responsible this uh this person who created it is i suppose yeah, very true. I mean, I will say for Konami, the the first um, guy that that created the the original remake fan remake of PT, um, they did when they after they sent him the cease and desist, and he complied with it and everything. They actually brought him in, and they hi- they hired him to be to be an intern. Hmm. Um, so they actually brought him in and and gave him a path into the company and into legitimacy, so to speak. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of like hiring the hacker that hacked your system, I guess. Yeah, not not a bad idea, I suppose. If any of you Speaking out there, of hackers, oh, oh well, go ahead. That's oh, I see where you were doing there, and I interrupted it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Dang, that was a good one too. That was a legitimate transition, and I I know and that one. Up. I wasn't even trying to do that one. That was just natural. Oh, well, then I don't feel bad about interrupting you at all. Yeah, no, proceed. Plan that. Yeah. <laughs> so Nintendo's online subscription. It apparently may may just be adding Super Nintendo games. Uh, a modder online uh, goes by the Twitter name of Cappuccino Heck uh, discovered that the NES online files contain references to just a, a slew of Super Nintendo titles and some good ones, some really good ones. We talked a little bit last episode about the Nintendo online and the, the Nintendo... Um, the Nintendo games that you can get as part of your subscription to Nintendo. I had just subscribed to that before my holiday trip. And so got to, got to play it and really had a lot of fun with it. But if they could get super Nintendo games on there, uh, I think that would be, that would be fantastic. So the, the games that cappuccino heck has apparently found code in the Nintendo online files to indicate is coming include super Mario Kart. Zelda Link to the Past, Yoshi's Island, Star Fox, Contra 3, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, Super Metroid, of course, Super Mario World, uh, Super Punch-Out, Mario All-Stars, and some some games that have become quite rare and expensive. So it'd be a great way to play things like Demon's Crest. You know, um, I, I think this is a really nice and varied list of, of games. If this is the real list, it would be... I'd, it'd be fantastic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the list itself would be awesome. There's a lot of games there that I would love to play. Um, I don't currently subscribe to the uh, NES online thing just because there haven't been a ton of games that I've just really been interested in playing. I'm definitely more of a, of a Super Nintendo fan than I was a Nintendo fan um, or an NES fan. Um, I, a couple questions I had on this is, one, um, it's inevitable that, that there will be Super Nintendo games on the online 
system. Like that's that doesn't surprise me at all. That I'm like, yes, of course they'll be there. Um, this doesn't really indicate that it'll be anytime soon, so it doesn't really speak to a you know. I would have imagined that we, in sometime in 2019 we would start getting some sort of Super Nintendo games on there anyway. That was just my th- feeling. I don't think you could drag that out too much longer. I don't think you could uh, drop. Uh, unknown NES games on the uh, Switch Online service for much longer before people start getting even more frustrated than they probably are already, um, given the given the selection. Um, so I'm not surprised that it's it's coming out. I'm not surprised that it's possibly coming out that it's there. My kind of surprise, and this just is my own tech ignorance, is I don't know enough about like why these titles would be buried in the software if they're not. Like, why would you need to put these in the software, put these names in the software before you actually announce the games um, or before the games are actually downloaded? Like, why wouldn't it just be during an update, then all of a sudden the games are there? Like, why do you need to seed these sort of names in there? And again, there could be a legitimate reason, but it just makes me question. It just makes me question the whole process. It makes me question a lot of things. I don't think I quite question this Cappuccino Hex validity. It sounds like that he has a pretty extensive history of delivering on these types of, of observations and he, he does what he does well um i just i just don't know why you know yeah it see it's not like he found the actual data for the games and even if he did super nintendo games it's not like they're data intensive right you could download the entire super nintendo library for far 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 less than a day one patch to most games mm-hmm so I think it's really cool, though. I mean, in terms of the game selection, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. I have not played any Kirby games on uh, on Super Nintendo. I was entirely Game Boy and Nintendo with Kirby, and I really liked those Game Boy and Nintendo games. So to see three, four, I guess, Kirby games on this list, um, I'm super. That that's that's pretty cool. I would love to play those games. I really would. Um, super Mario All Stars. Uh, just a uh, that seems a little weird. Um, you already have all the two. I mean, I don't know. That just seems a little weird. Um, there's others, the Yoshi games I never got around to playing, so I'd love to play those. Super Metroid is my, one of my favorite games of all time, probably five or so on my list of all-time favorite games. So that I'd love to play just portably. That'd be super fun. So uh, Super Mario Kart will probably be a letdown for every single person who plays it. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> that seems like a little uh, a little lame to include that because no one's going to actually enjoy it, I don't think. Uh, they're going to realize how hard it is to play now that you've had the luxury of modern racing games or cart games so yeah that's cool though if uh, let it let us know on mou podcast on twitter if uh, any of these games sound particularly interesting to you and what kind of games you would like to see on the downloadable nintendo switch yeah. service. so if they're what what are, what games that aren't on this list do you hope to see on the switch yeah yeah, Ooh, yeah. you know what PlayStation hopes to see <laughs> boobs a, a record sale oh. a record number of sales they're getting there they are getting there Sony announced at the end of 2018 that they have eclipsed the 91 million console sale mark for PlayStation 4 wow it, that's a staggering number so the the current record is the Wii mm-hmm. and that thanks largely to the fact that it tapped into demographics that had never bought game consoles before. It tapped into you know, soccer moms and it tapped into to retirement homes. <laughs> it, it was, it, I remember going to, to, 
a retirement home to to see a relative and in the community center there they had a Wii hooked up to the TV that was just like the community Wii and they used it for you know physical therapy to get the 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 old folk moving um it's it was a it was a juggernaut for all its failings as an actual video game system <laughs> it sold 101.6 million consoles and it really they all it would take is another full year of PlayStation 4 being uh kind of PlayStation 5 free mm-hmm to to set this record i think yeah if if sony comes out and says hey playstation 5 is launching in this holiday season it might be touchy but then again there's a lot of people that jump into a playstation's uh, or a, a console's lifespan right at the very end because that's when you can stock up on games on the cheap that's where you can really get a lot of good deals but i wonder how many of those people buy used they buy a used Mm -hmm. console so I would. It'll be interesting to see how, if it if it if it makes the mark. I think it will. My guess is that uh, toward the end of the year, holiday seasons, we're going to see PlayStation Four is down to two hundred dollars. <laughs> uh, just even with bundled games, probably they're going to be really cheap. They always get that way. Um, and I have a feeling that by Black or during Black Friday, the, it'll it'll bump over that one hundred and one. It'll top the Wii. Um, that's just my my gut feeling. I'm not an analyst, but that's what I feel. Um, what I think this this n- news though really puts into perspective is, so this is big news. It's huge. PlayStation celebrating. It's phenomenal. Ninety one million units. Um, PlayStation Two is at one hundred and fifty seven million. So it re- and there's no way PlayStation Four is going to hit that. So it just goes to show you, like it reminds you how huge PlayStation Two was. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah unbelievably massive. And of course, people bought it. I think a lot for the DVD player. That was a big draw for a lot of people. Uh, but independent of why the fact is it sold and it's it was massive um and it's still the number two behind playstation 2 is the nintendo ds and i don't know if that's the entire line but i imagine it probably is um that's 154 million so if it is the entire line of two ds's or of, of ds's um then you've got you know a whole bunch of different systems that all add up to still not as much as the playstation 2 um it doesn't include the like uh, 3ds so it just must be the standard ds line but um pretty cool uh imagine yeah. can you can you guess how many the wonder swan sh- sold <laughs> uh 50,000 wow you really undersold the wonder swan 1.1 million so really yeah wow uh, a couple systems, I'm looking at VGCharts.com, a couple systems that uh, are sold so low they're not even on here. Uh, 3DO, which you mentioned earlier, the best system you've ever played. That's This aligns to that. Um, <laughs> and the uh, TurboGrafx-16, which I've only played at the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas, and was surprised by it. It was super fun to play. I was yeah. really, really happy with it, actually. And then That Neo was Geo, one that so. was really... The the TurboGrafx-16 had a really weird marketing strategy. So they launched regionally. They basically came in and they had a launch hub in New York City, and they had a launch hub in Los Angeles. And they were just going to limit launches to major metropolitan areas. And so living in the Midwest, where we both grew up, I had ne- I never even heard of a, of a TurboGrafx-16 until, like, high school when a buddy of mine had one. And, and he was he had got it out on the coast because he used to he was a you know a military family and he'd moved to 
our town from somewhere out east here. And it was just like we were all mind. We were it was like some sort of crazy import that nobody had ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Like, I, yeah, growing in the Midwest, it was basically Sega and Nintendo. There was nothing really else. So anything like the Neo Geo, I would see Neo Geo arcades and I would see the Neo Geo logo in the marquees. And that's as close as that. That's really as close as Neo Geo ever got to my hands as a kid. Like it was one of those fake consoles that didn't actually exist. If you heard about someone in your neighborhood who had a Neo Geo that was the kid nobody liked because they constantly lied about everything. I also I also have a pet dragon and a Neo Geo, like one of those guys. So I never and same thing with like TurboGrafx 16. Um it just didn't yeah, I it Sega Sega CD was even that way for me. Like it was just something no one had. Like what is that? That's not a thing. I had one friend with a Dreamcast and he was cool even before having the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast didn't make him any cooler because again, I'm like that's a thing that just I don't have any context to associate if that's cool or not. Um, that was that was kind of me. So, yeah. All I right. think one thing I think just going back to sales numbers and sales figures. One thing that I think that is telling is the article that talks about the PlayStation Four hitting ninety-one million. Mentions how the Switch is now in you know just a short period of time reached twenty-three million, but. One note that was kind of a throwaway line in the in the article was the fact that Microsoft has completely stopped reporting sales numbers for oh, the Xbox line. Like that, that's just not a good sign. It is not. It, that clearly indicates that you've got no good news to report if if that's the route you're taking, especially for a public company with a gigantic gaming division. Yeah, according to VG Charts with a Z. Um, Xbox 360 is currently at 85 million. Um, Xbox One is at 43 million, and Xbox is at 24 million. So the highest-selling Xbox console, which isn't even the most recent generation console, 85 million, is still below every PlayStation console, uh, home console like the Vita, obviously. And the Xbox 360, that 85 million, how many of those were people buying a second one because their first one, Red <laughs> Rings, so many times? You're right. Finally, I'm, I went through three Red Rings before I finally was like, I'm just waiting for a, a hardware revision. I'm done with this. Yeah, that's very true. That's how they bolster the sales numbers. That's smart. Yeah. <laughs> a failure rate. Yeah. Intentional failure rate. The PS3 actually sold more than I thought it would be. It's at 86 million. I honestly thought it would be way less than that just because it was so expensive. It did pretty well in late lifespan, and it did pretty well in Japan, specifically late lifespan. Yeah, let's... I bought one at launch. I actually bought... I bought it specifically to scalp it effectively, (laughs) and it couldn't sell it. Oh, no. (laughs) It couldn't resell it, so I was just stuck with the thing. And, um... I, I didn't, I was a pure, basically I was an Xbox 360 guy at that point. I, I don't even think I had a game for the PlayStation 3 from launch through maybe like the first six months the thing was out. Oh, it wow. was, it was re- a really, really sad major console launch. Speaking of launches. Oh man, 2019. Mm, that's the year we're in. That is the year we are in. <laughs> So last episode, we we looked backward. We talked about all the things that we that made 2018 great for us. What do you say we look forward this episode and talk about our most anticipated games? In the year 2000. 
19. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds like a swell idea. And right. so swell, in fact, that I actually have a list that I created. It's almost like I knew you were going to say that. It's weird. Whoa. Whoa. I know. You, you've completely just lifted the curtain, shown <laughs> the people, you've broke the fourth wall, broken kayfabe. It's true. Things are going bad. We prepare and it still is this uh, disjointed. So, yeah. oh, wow. We got, we got, you know, we got a little ways. <laughs> We're only a year old, guys. Come on. We're not professional anything. Yeah. We're learning, yeah. jerks. Stop, stop being mad at us. Yeah. So, 2019. Um, Speaking specifically of games, like what are some of the games that you're most excited about that have uh, that that are at least as of right now scheduled to come out in 2019? One that really intrigues me, and this one doesn't have a release date yet. It is just sort of targeted for 2019. Doesn't have a, a set date. Is Atomic Heart? It's developed by Mundfish, who I don't know anything about Mundfish. It's coming out for PlayStation 4, Xbox, and PC. But watching the trailer for it, I got the distinct feeling that it was like Bioshock. And I know last episode you said how you just couldn't get into Bioshock. But to me, it looks like somebody merged Bioshock with Nier Automata. And I know how much you love Nier Automata. Yeah, that's that's a that's a conundrum. It mixes a good game with a terrible game. <laughs> I'm actually looking at some screenshots now, and I would throw in like a Fallouty kind of vibe to it as well. Yeah. It looks like a lot of the weapons are sort of handmade uh, things you might find in the in the Commonwealth. Um, so yeah, you could throw that in there. I'm seeing floating robots like you like your Cogsworths and stuff like that. Your Mister Handies. Yeah. Um, yeah, that looks really cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm on board. That looks neat. Uh, and then uh, on that vein, speaking of Nier Automata, next game on my list is actually by Platinum Games, and it's called Babylon's Fall. Hmm. And this one I really don't know anything about. It I just I saw Platinum Games. I saw that it's basically um, a steampunk kind of fantasy era and looks like the the trailer was kind of interesting because it it goes through this almost timeline it doesn't really reveal much about the game itself but it goes through several different eras and they're all in the future like 5000 AD but it's it, it looks makes it clear that this is going to be some sort of an epic saga because it goes through multiple you know multiple eras as it's cycling through all of the different years that that presumably take place throughout the game. Yeah, I'm excited about that one too. Uh, they did they showed the trailer, uh, quote unquote, because again there wasn't really a whole lot about it at the Game Awards, um, and I didn't care anything about it until I realized it was Platinum Games. I'm like, okay, they'll they'll do something <laughs> cool because it doesn't. Yeah. It's not an engaging trailer unless you can. You have to sort of impart your own thoughts on it because they don't tell you what it's going to be, what it's going to be about, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the the most intriguing things about it is they have a, a Platinum Games and Square Enix have released this still image, and it shows just the four characters kind of silhouetted against a backdrop, and in this backdrop is this gigantic castle looking, you know, like it's rising up out of the mists, and that got my juices flowing. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you? What, what, uh, give me something on your list. So I am looking forward to, um, the Outer Worlds 
Um, mm. The game that uh, is from Obsidian, I believe Obsidian, right? Uh, the yep. Yep. creators of uh, Fallout New Vegas, among other things, um, which looks like the basically the Fallout. I mean, the way it's being talked about in games journalism is essentially the Fallout game that we wanted instead of Fallout 76. Yeah. Um, and it looks really cool. Now, they, the developers, Obsidian, have cautioned. They've set expectations. They've said it's not nearly as big as a Fallout game. Uh, it's it's de- definitely set your expectations appropriately, which I appreciate. They saw that the, the narrative was probably running away from him, and they're like, you know what? we gotta we got to control this. So I appreciate a publisher that's going to do that, that's not going to oversell things. I think yep. it just looks really freaking cool. It's a bit maybe too... Bioshock Infinite Infinity in terms of their uh, the art style, like it's a little cartoony, which may be a little distracting. Um, but I'm not going to write it off because of that by any means. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think one of the things that really got me excited for the Outer Worlds was I read a review. I think it was PC Gamer who would described it as Fallout meets Firefly. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah, that that, that that tickles in all the right spots. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. So what's what's uh, what is another one that you your juices are squirming about? This is one that I guess I'm equally anticipated and apprehensive about all at the same time. And this is a game that was a Kickstarter backed game back in 2015. I backed it back in 2015 and it's just stuck in development hell. Um, it, it was originally announced for the Wii U, the Vita and the PlayStation four, the Wii U and the Vita, in addition to the Macs and Linux versions have all been canceled at this (laughs) point. The PlayStation four version is still live. They've added, uh, Xbox and switch version and, uh, the PC version is still alive. And that is, it was touted as the spiritual successor to Castlevania from Koji Igarashi. It is Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. So early, late last year, they sent out a message to all the Kickstarter backers telling us that they had finally partnered with another company to hopefully get this thing, move this thing across the finish line and get them to fruition. And... At that point, I had I was basically just chalking this game up to uh, it. It may come out. It may be vaporware. If I get anything out of this, it's going to be uh, a bonus at this point. And then they announced who they were partnering with, and it's Way Forward, <laughs> which yeah, developer of Shante, just a great platform developer. I really, really hope they bring this thing across the finish line. I will say that as great. A plat- as great a developer as WayForward seems to be, um, one of the chapters in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels from uh, Jason Schreier, uh, it talked about um, Yacht Club Games. They were developers that were at WayForward, and they started Yacht Club Games and then created Shovel Knight, of course. And mm-hmm. they said that WayForward is um, – they didn't use the term sweatshop, but basically they there's a lot of, there's a lot of turnover, and they also do a lot of kind of crappy – uh, small time games, almost like mobile type games. Um, now I think that may be what their history was, but I think after the success of games like Shantae, they, they produced all of the Shantae games. I don't know if they developed all of them, but they might have, I don't know, but they might be publishers and developers to be honest. Um, they, uh, after that success of that, it seems as though they're kind of steering more towards quote unquote legitimate uh, stuff because yeah, the stuff that people know about that they've done is really good, but apparently they also do a lot of stuff that people don't know about. That's sort of throwaway. 
Um, but that that's anyway, that's what the chapter was about in that book. So I wanted to throw out there just to bum people out, I guess. Yeah, 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 that's great. Bloodstain hasn't been enough of a downer on my life. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Didn't they though release yeah. to, as kick, as a sort of supplement a an a, an eight bit sort of a uh, yeah. side game that actually a lot of people really loved. Yep, yep. They they did release like a little teaser um, teaser platformer. I, I haven't played it. I haven't played it, but it's it, they sent it to the code to us as part of the you know if you back, kickstart backed it you got it for free. That's but, what it was. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you? What? Uh, give um, me another one. Give so me another one. I I am really excited. Speaking of of trailers that showed absolutely zero gameplay that were revealed during the Game Awards last year, Journey to the Savage Planet. Um, I, th- there's nothing about this game I- I'm aware of. Like the, uh, the developer talked a little bit about it, uh, during the, um, during the, uh, game awards, uh, and described it a little bit. But what's interesting is the developer Typhoon, they're a brand new studio, so they've never done any games before. Um, it's a pretty ambitious looking game anyway. It's going to be pr- published by 505. So also publishers of Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. So hopefully that, uh, that that doesn't mean anything there, um, but I was taken <laughs> aback because, or I was really drawn into this game because the trailer was just pretty funny. It took, it was a t- twenty-five second maybe even trailer, if even that, but it essentially just it was a camera pan over a scene that looked like it had ended terribly um, on a on a planet. It, it was basically followed um, from a messy bed in a in a space station. So you've got a character that apparently is just sort of. Uh, doesn't care about their appearances and just sort of probably your your quick-witted uh, uh, loser, probably. Um, and the camera panned from this empty bed, and you could see as the camera panned down a hallway from this empty bed that there was distress, there was clutter. Uh, it could be a messy room or it could be a sign of struggle. We're not really sure. It continues to pan out, so it's trying to build this sort of tension. What's happening? What's happening? And then it pans over a banana peel uh, that has been slid across the floor, because what you realize in the next few frames, someone has stepped on the banana peel, tripped, and fallen out of the space station and is unconscious. And that's essentially the trailer. Uh, and, <laughs> and I'm on board, man. I am on board. Uh, I don't I, – I'm, I'm reserving my expectations uh, because, again, they're a new developer. It looks kind of ambitious. I don't even know if it will fully be out by 2018. That's when they said it was going to be out. But I would not be surprised if it got pushed back, especially as it gets more ambitious. But I'm I'm on board, man. I'm yeah. on board. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like I like in the the trailer. One of the first things you see on the wall is a sign that says, "This job has worked zero days without an accident." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so someone's still alive there to tell you that, hey, uh, this is a problem. So you know. So. The, the the monitor too that that comes up is. Um, talks about Kindred Aerospace, which is presumably the the company that you created or or is backing this whole project, and it uh, says that it was voted the fourth best yeah. interstellar <laughs> exploration company as voted by its PR team. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the uh, the CEO or the head of the company um, during the Game Awards interview, I remember stressed like, yeah, this company's really proud of being fourth. And so (laughs) they're just like, that's part of their main marketing collateral. And again, considering it's from their own (laughs) HR team. So I'm hoping there's going to be a a humor there that's pretty consistent throughout. Yeah. I don't even know if it's like a, uh, I'm guessing it's probably like a, like a first person sort of action adventure kind of game is my assumption. But honestly, I I don't know anything about it. 
the the whole fourth place thing is even more funny when you re- you think about marketing and how most industries tend to have three market leaders and nobody else can survive in the industry. <laughs> so being fourth best is basically like a death knell in, in most industries. <laughs> and is literally a death knell in the case of this particular character. So uh, maybe, maybe they're still alive. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, uh, what about you? What's What's next on your list? Well, speaking of death knells, <laughs> I'm going to go with a remake. This one's coming out. Uh, very shortly, as we record this in on in mid January 2019, and that's the Resident Evil 2 remake. <laughs> Comes out January 25th. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm. I can't uh, wait. Did you play the uh, one shot demo that that was out recently? I haven't. No, no. Have you? No, me either. I'm scared of scary, scary games. Screw them, man. <laughs> scaredy mix, scaredy pants. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't do scary games, man. I. I. I played like the first 20 minutes of Resident Evil seven and nearly pooped myself. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Sorry. I, I almost didn't finish the game I mentioned earlier among the sleep. Cause it's scary. Like I just don't do it, man. But uh, I appreciate everyone who does. I will probably watch a let's play of it as I get older and my time gets more limited. I'm starting to realize the real, the sort of practical benefits of let's plays. And um, if you find the right let's player, the right entertaining type of let's player, you can actually feel like you, played the game and, and really experienced the game without actually having to play it. So that's so the way is I that, scary games. Is that how you're doing the alphabet challenge? <laughs> you're just going to watch 26 Let's Plays this Oh, that wouldn't that be fantastic if I just posted in the, in the forums, in the Cartridge Club forums tomorrow? <laughs> Got through my alphabet challenge, man. I watched all these games. <laughs> Especially for the people who are like real sticklers for rule sets. I know Eric, yeah. Eric Mighty Q Dog, for example, like he has very specific rules. You got to beat these. If you don't follow these rules, you don't technically beat the game. And I respect him for it, but man, that would probably grind his ears a bit. <laughs> he would probably have an aneurysm. That'd <laughs> eh, be worth it. Be worth it. Yeah. So you you don't like scary games, but some you you mentioned Tim Schafer before. Yeah. What are your thoughts about Psychonauts Two? I'm super looking forward to it. Do you think of that as a scary game? No. Okay. I, I was trying to no. find that. I was trying to find the thread there. You I was. Making. I was. I was originally going to go the antithesis of a scary game. Ah. Uh. Gotcha. But then I realized, oh, it's Tim Schafer, and we already talked about Tim Schafer. So I pivoted <laughs> mid-comment and probably resulted in a sentence that made no sense whatsoever. It didn't to me. That's why I had to clarify. Um, yeah, no, I'm super looking forward to Psychonauts 2. I was a um, – so I did not play Psychonauts when it first came out. I was not – it was not even on my radar. I played it uh, last year maybe, um, and it just blew my effing mind. It was one of those games that – if I had learned or knew about that game as a kid, I very well could be developing video games professionally now. Like, it could have had that much of an impact on me, and I would have changed my life's direction because of this game. Um, because it really, it does a lot of things that, at the if I, a lot of video games have done now, like, just kind of have, be funny and delve into, you know, personal relationships and just kind of be wacky and weird. Um it does it in a way that games back then just really didn't do. So I can understand why this game was a big deal when it was released, and it was. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the second one. I will say I'm hoping that they've really refined the platform mechanics. Uh, playing Psychonauts 1 last year, so far after it originally came out, it made me realize how far we've come when it comes to controls in 3D platforms because the controls are terrible. So you yeah. do have to get over that. Uh, so I hope they figure that out. However, Psychonauts 2 has been in development for a while. It was supposed to be released like two years ago or something. So 
I would not be surprised if this one even got bumped out to be to be totally frank. Uh, what do you yeah. What do you think and, about well, it? Well, and and I mean, Tim Schafer is kind of legendary for see having delays in his games, mm-hmm. so I, I'm excited for it. I I've I'm a big Tim Schafer fan. I like his humor. I like his um, kind of irreverence. I guess um, you know, we we mentioned Brutal Legend. I I really had a great great time with that game most of that game <laughs> um yeah i'm i'm all in on it i like i'm uh i'll give double fine a try no matter what they release pretty much yeah that's fair that's fair what else you got so the next one on my list is uh a, the culmination of a trilogy a, a trilogy that I haven't played in in years and years, and this is another crowdsourced one because I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> so I've had this on what is effectively a pre-order for I don't know, like two years now, and that is Shenmue Three. Mm. This one has a street date of August twenty seventh. Here's hoping. That's pretty specific. So usually, yeah. you know, they they're doing something more than just giving you a season. So, yep. Huh. Yeah, and and here's hoping they do a better job with Shenmue Three than they did with the the remake remaster of Shenmue One and Two, which uh, uh, did not were not well received. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so I I would say just set your expectations properly. You know, it's a crowdsourced game, and Shenmue One and Two had pretty big budgets from what I remember. Right, they were like yeah. big games. So yeah, this they will have, have to they be were... a much smaller game. Yeah, they they were. I mean, they had basically the entire. They kept Sega afloat really through most of the Dreamcast era there, um, and I think Yu Suzuki. You know, having the fact that Yu Suzuki is still behind it is is crucial. Yeah. So, for sure. cautiously optimistic. Well, good. Cautiously optimistic, as you should be. Um, what about you? Give me give me another one. I think I think you and I are both in on on. A little Blaskovitz action. Yeah, I'm. I I love the Wolf, new Wolfenstein games. Um, didn't really think about playing them until Pam um, uh, cannot be tamed as her, as her YouTube channel uh, in the forums mentioned that Wolfenstein the most the recent release of Wolfenstein it was the uh, the new order uh, right the the yep. yes the new order. it was that the was new the, order and then the old blood yes so the new order at which she said that it was it was like one of the best stories in a game and I foolishly thought Wolfenstein is all about just shooting Nazis yeah. and that's it. Um, Completely caught me off guard when oh, yeah. she said that. I it wasn't not on my radar at all. I just assumed it was another run and gun Call of Duty clone. Hundred percent me too. So I, I gave it a chance because I respect her opinion and she always have really good opinions, except she loves adventure cl- point click adventure games. Uh so but <laughs> none of us are perfect. <laughs> so I took a chance I I friggin' loved it, fell in love with it, became one of my favorite games. So now I'm a day one buyer for any Wolfenstein game, and Youngblood looks especially cool. Um, it, it sort of fast-forwards to the 1980s. It features B.J. Blazkowicz's twin daughters, who up until that this coming game haven't been born yet. Um, his wife has been pregnant in the in the previous game, in the, the New Colossus, um, and they uh, are born, and they got a free B.J. from Nazi captivity, apparently, and it, it fast-forwards to the 1980s, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Normally, I would not be excited about. I love the weird sort of uh, future retro 50s vibe that Wolfenstein has done. I love it when Fallout, the series, does it. It's just a unique kind of cool thing. And 80s, I feel, is almost too much substance, and there's not enough satire that you can bring upon it, or there's not enough sort of imagined future you can bring upon it. 
but I think Wolfenstein is going to be able to uniquely do that really kind of interestingly. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm always intrigued by the concept of alternate history mm-hmm. and you know, I, whether it's things like Man in the High Castle on Amazon or the Wolfenstein series or Fallout, things that have uh, a history of what what if what if something would have happened you know, slightly differently throughout history. Um, I actually have a book a, a book that's features a bunch of different historical what ifs. It's called the Big Book of What If in History. And it talks about things like what if Hitler had been killed in the 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 bombing that was uh, the the plot line of the Valkyrie, right? What if what if that plot was successful? What would have happened with history and and the rise of Stalin and and what would have happened had um, Germany developed the jet engine two years earlier? What would have happened if um, you know? If Reagan, the assassination and attempt on Reagan had succeeded, just interesting things where there are so many points, crucial points throughout history where things that could have gone one inch one way or one inch the other could have changed the course of much of human history. Very cool. Very cool. What else? Uh, We're both I think we're both probably on on board with Doom, you know, probably pretty straightforward. Right. Doom Eternal. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Give me, give me that id. Yep. That, give me that id. That's another one that surprised me. I was, I was not expecting to have as much fun with Doom 2016 as I did. So I'm glad I did. Yeah. yeah. Doom, Doom has a, a special place in my heart just because of the history of the the series. I playing it on PC way back in the day when it first came out, and it was just making its rounds via you know sharing floppy disks from one friend to another and making a copy and sending it along on its way. Um, and, and then it was also one of the launch games that I got when I bought my, my original PlayStation on launch. So, uh, popping in doom on the PlayStation was mind blowing because it looked so amazing. (laughs) And I'm sure it holds up. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it holds up basically as well as any other original doom True, but uh, True. probably it's probably a toss up between the the PlayStation and the the uh, Jaguar version as the sort of uh, archival best version of the original Doom hmm. for my money anyway. Yeah. The Jaguar game, though, doesn't have any music. Oh, that's weird. So it, it's sort of a, it's really creepy. <laughs> that's weird. Really creepy. Huh. That's crazy. What else you got? This one is going to, you're going to find this one strange because everybody knows I'm not an Xbox guy, mm-hmm. but Ori and the Will of the Wisps, mm. which is the sequel to Ori and the Blind Forest, uh, kind of a, a relatively challenging platformer. Uh, and I love platform games. I, the 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 older I get, the more platform games I find I play. And I don't know if it's just because I'm nostalgic for growing up with them and playing so many in the eight and sixteen bit era, but I just love them. Yeah, I'm way better at them as I get older. You would think my reflexes would suffer, but I'm just better at them. And as a kid, they were impossible. I enjoyed them all right, but yeah, I just like them. I don't know, they're fun. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I never played the first one. Uh, it definitely seems like a game that's right up my alley. But again, me just not being an Xbox, I don't have an Xbox, so I don't I have. It's not been possible. I think I may have downloaded it on PC during a Steam sale and just never played it the first one. But maybe I'll have to do that and prep for the next one. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Give me, give um, me another one. I give am looking one. forward to. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick blast of two, just because I think there's one that we're both at least somewhat intrigued about, and that's Biomutant. Um, I'm just really cool. Like, so the concept of Biomutant, um, it, it's a stupid title. I'll be honest. I, I just don't like the title because it's too vague. It's it doesn't really. It's feel very like, generic. It feels like a a a a bro fest sort of first yeah. person shooter kind of game, but it's not at all. It's he plays a raccoon, and it seems like it's like sort of a third-person adventure game um, that has some some interesting seasonal and time mechanics and, and probably some sort of collecting mechanics and things like that. But um, what's interesting, like, I was kind of on board with it. I was I, It looked interesting. And then I remember um, a visual. I don't know if it was part of a trailer, if it was an image or what it was, but I remember a visual of a vehicle that was essentially a giant hand. And you would ride the hand, and the hand would shoot using almost like a gun shape. And so imagine like this giant metal hand the size of a car, for example, and you're a human like riding on it and it's sort of galloping around as fingers on a desk might do if you're bored. I mean, it was just this weird image and I was like, that's something weird. I need to control that vehicle. I need to do something with that. And so I've been following it ever since. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it doesn't have an official release date and Amazon lists it as December 31st, 2019, meaning that it might might not come out in 2019 but yeah i'm hoping that it does so yeah and then yeah it it's interesting because it looks like it's got a an aspect of um sort of trial and error with the way different ways things can mutate yeah so i'm i'm thinking it's going to have a lot of great replay value because with that kind of with that kind of mechanic you can really do a bunch of different things and maybe solve puzzles in different ways that weren't anticipated and have kind of those uh, almost a, a breath of the wild esque uh, lifespan where, you know, you're constantly seeing people doing crazy things with new mutants and going, Oh my God, I can't believe I never would have thought you could do that mm-hmm. this way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think it looks really cool. Um, and then I said, I would give a couple just uh, so I give you some time to kind of talk through some of yours. But um, the last one that I'm kind of looking forward to is The Last Campfire, appropriately enough, I suppose. Uh, a game by Hello Games, uh, notorious for uh, the success or lack thereof, however you want to look at it, of No Man's Sky. Um, they also released, uh, God, what was it called? Johnny Dangerous or something like that? Kind of like a motorcycle, almost like a trials type of game, uh, which is totally different than No Man's Sky. And so I think I'm mostly drawn to this, not only because it does sound kind of like a cool game, it's like a puzzle uh, 3D kind of platformer adventure game, really right up my alley, Um, but it's also so much different than what they've done in the past, and I like a studio that will just do totally different things. Most of the time that'll probably fail. You really need to sort of develop a a knowledge and expertise in something to make it really great, but I like the fact that they're going really far out of their, their wheelhouse and doing something totally different. In fact, what I thought was kind of interesting about the marketing material on this is uh, in the in the press materials, it says uh, it's this game is a unique tale from Hello Games and the creative minds behind Lost Winds. Instead of saying No Man's Sky, which is obviously the most well-known game, they pick something else. And so I don't know if they're trying to distance themselves from the stigma of, of No Man's Sky. They're still trying to work over that stigma. I think they've worked over it quite a bit, but I don't know. It's, it seems like a very fun, cool game, so I'll definitely be following it. I don't believe it has a definitive release date but it's expected to be 2019 all right what else what do, what do you got so i have two more on my list of anticipated 
One I'll just touch on briefly because I've talked about it in previous episodes, and that's Skull and Bones from Ubisoft. That's basically the pirating portion of Assassin's Creed Black Flag getting its own game. I that was the part of the of Black Flag that I really enjoyed, played the most of was the the sailing around and and uh, basically the pirate capturing ships and sinking ships and fighting galleons and things like that. So I think really excited for that. The other one is Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. And for me, this has also got a, a solid release date. This is March 22nd. It's sort of looks like Assassin's Creed in Japan. And I love both of those things. The one thing that makes me a little bit hesitant is that it's from, from software. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a Dark Souls guy. I'm not uh, a Demon Souls. That whole like uber super difficult test my manhood here with these <laughs> games. I don't have a lot of manhood, so uh, I just like to play a game, enjoy it, enjoy the storyline. Uh, so I'm hoping that it's a little bit of a departure from the normal from software trope. Good luck. Yeah, uh, it would be nice if it was, but pff, yeah, right. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Although From Software did release uh, something way out of their wheelhouse just this year, I think it was. Uh, Desarena. Like you play or... as yeah, yeah yeah where you play as a ghost and you have to kind of influence the world through nuance. Mm-hmm. So you know maybe they're trying to branch out. Here's hoping. <laughs> yeah, this this trailers of uh, Sacred Rose definitely looks like they're trying to go for a calm. Uh, ghosting <laughs> influence. Yeah, you're right. No, totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> I said, I said maybe. Okay, you're right. Fair <laughs> enough. You did say maybe. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to mention a couple of games that I wouldn't say that I'm highly anticipating, but games that just kind of have me intrigued and that are on the periphery of my radar. And that may be because there's not a lot of information on them yet, or just that I think they could be really cool, but I think they could also suck. Um, one is called code vein, which sticking with the theme of not liking from software and the dark souls esque stuff is this one is it's not front buys from software, but it's had a lot of a lot of the articles that I've read about it so far say it has kind of a Dark Souls esque um, edge to it, which I don't know if they mean that in terms of just the difficulty level and the keep bashing your head against a wall aspect or if it's just the the style of it. Um, but the setting is right up my alley. It's a vampire-themed anime-style action RPG. You could have one of those adjectives, <laughs> and I'd be all over it. Having all three of them? Oh, man. Sign me up. But then Dark Souls just sort of crushes anything. So mm-hmm. this could go either way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The second one is Control. This is from Remedy. They did Alan Wake and Quantum Break. And this is another one similar to Quantum Break. It's a high-tech supernatural thriller, but it looks like it's got some kind of interesting control mechanisms. Uh, ironically enough, the game is <laughs> called Control, but it's got some like telekinesis kind of stuff, which I, I'm kind of mildly interested in just to see how that pans out. Yeah. And then the last one, which I just don't know, we don't really know anything about other than the fact that it's being made, is by Respawn, and it's Star Wars Jedi The Fallen Order. 
The only thing that's really been released on it so far is that it's uh, the storyline takes place after episode three. So uh, basically it's as the, the Jedi order is being hunted down and, and obliterated. Uh, this is kind of in that, that time period in the, in the story arc of star Wars. So um, I'm always interested to see story arcs that take place that aren't just part of the typical, um, you know, flow from episode one to episode two to episode three, things like, uh, like solo, uh, or, um, what was the, what was the one that came out before episode nine? I've never seen a star Wars movie. So I, uh, (laughs) I don't, I, I can't help you there. I'm sorry. I, I <laughs> is that shocking? Is that yeah? Yeah, I, yeah. You think you know a guy? I, <laughs> I've been told when I make that revelation to people, usually the first thing out of people's mouths is, "But you seem like someone who would definitely like Star Wars." Like what? Like I, 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 ha- I am that type of person that they're like, "But you're a nerd. You should love Star Wars." Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, never, never seen them. That that astounds me. <laughs> I don't even. I, I don't even know what to... It's a badge of honor s- at this point. So even if I was mildly interested, which I'm really not, space shooting... Uh, there's a weird thing in my psyche. I don't know how to how to attack this. And we're getting we're getting late, so I will keep this short. But um, I, I for some reason, my willing suspension of disbelief stops at space stuff. Like, you could be on the Earth, and there could be aliens and shit. And I'm like, oh, that sounds reasonable. For some reason, once you get into space, I'm like, that wouldn't really happen. That's not how that happened. <laughs> Whatever, that's not even real. What? Uh, and I don't know why it is. And I think maybe that's probably the same thing that almost keeps me from like high fantasy and stuff. Like even high fantasy, I'm like, but if magic can do that, why can't it do that? Like, oh, there's some sort of weird thing preventing you from doing this thing, but you can do that thing, and and it just breaks uh. down and it, and it hates. So I've I've tried space movies, um, and I just they can't. I can't. I can't do it. You know. I'm sorry. Huh. I know. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. I. The, the the movie that I was thinking about was Rogue One, which means absolutely nothing to you, but maybe somebody <laughs> listening isn't a dirty savage and will have watched some of these Star Wars movies. Hey, I'm the only person who thinks Rogue Two was better, you know? <laughs> I know it's a weird stance to take, uh, but I really think they evolved the character of that character, so... Uh, Team Rogue Two. Team Rogue Two. I like it. I'm guessing like there is it. no Rogue Two. That's my guess. Uh, no, okay. no, no Rogue Two. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fact. That is a fact. <laughs> so, okay, we've we've talked about games we're anticipating. We've talked about some things that are sort of on our radar, but sort of floating out there. What? Let's do. Let's cap this episode off by revealing our 2019 gaming goals. Mm. I'll let you take the take the first stab. Sir. Mine will be short and sweet. So, not being a collector myself, I don't have any any collections or sets to complete or anything like that. I am really just, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing the backlog challenge at thecartridgeclub.org. Check it out. Go to the forums. It's really fun. Join in. Anyone can. Essentially, that means playing 26 games throughout the year. Uh, and each game um, is represented by a title or a letter to the alphabet. Um, each title of the... There's probably a much easier way of saying this, but it's obvious, right? A title of a game represents a letter based on the first letter in that title. Among the Sleep would be A, for example. Um, I did this back a couple years ago, I think, and it was a lot of fun. I got through a lot of games, a lot more games than I thought I would. really was able to make a dent in my backlog. Right now I have 
63 owned and unplayed games, which is, I think, 0.00005% of the games you have, uh, Scott, so please don't laugh. Um, 63 63 owned and unplayed that I'd like to do, Um, and I think that includes digital even, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. So a lot of games I can choose from, and then I also have 18 on pre-order, most of which I think are supposed to be released sometime this year. So I have a pretty good collection of games. I think I have almost all of the letters accounted for given that I will be able to actually finish the games that I have assigned to those particular letters. So that's that's pretty much my only gaming goal. What about you? It's a good goal. I remember, if I remember correctly, one of your 2018 gaming goals was completing the ABC challenge. I don't think it was. I don't think I, unless I might have said it under a drunken stupor, but I remember not participating either last year or last year and the year before. It's been a couple years since I did it in earnest. So if I did say I was going to, I immediately forgot and did not even think about it ever again. So we'll have to go back to the record. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. We'll, uh, we'll investigate that. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if I failed. I mean, failing goals is what I do. So yeah, it's not like I'd be disappointed if you were like, maybe, maybe somebody who recently listened to that episode can tweet at us and let us know, um, if I'm making shit up or if you're just not following through on your goals. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Do either one is, is just as like, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. What about you? You talked so all about my this, goals, ga- this gaming room of yours. Yep, yep. That's one goal. One of my gaming goals is to actually get my second game library room up and, and set up and so that I can once again display all of my games in a organized manner because it's kind of gotten away from me a little bit here at the end of 2018. Uh, so that's that's really number one. That's kind of my that's a short term goal that won't take me too long. I should have that done by middle of February, I would think. But then from a collecting standpoint, I really there's about there's five or six different sets that I'm very close to completing. So I'd like to complete at least half of these. I don't think. I think that's I think that's definitely doable. Some of them I'm not missing many heavy hitters on any of these and there's not not there's only a couple of games that don't pop up very frequently for for sale. Um so I don't think I'll have a, a a lot of problem, but I need those the 11 in television games that I mentioned earlier in the the pickup section. Uh I'm 5 games away from completing the Gamecom. Uh, there's only 20 games in that library. There's 133 unique games in the Intellivision library. I'm a little over halfway through the Sega Master System. Out of the 114 U.S. games, and that's all I'm collecting, is I'm I'm 41 away there. Uh, the Atari Lynx, I'm 9 away from completing that set. There's 71 games in that set. And I'm one game away from completing the Hyperscan set, and uh, that's just a whopping five-game <laughs> library there. Uh, so knocking out some of those is number two on my list after reorganizing the game game uh, rooms. But then the rest of the the only other goal that I really have is to knock out another good chunk of the Nintendo set. I'm down to 225 games left uh, for the licensed set there. Um, yeah. Wow. So hopefully I can knock out half of those this year. That's the, the goal uh, there. Of those, what's the one that you most want to complete? 
of the of those listed the, yeah the ones that you're looking to of the six or so listed i feel like i get shamed by mighty q dog every time uh i i every day that goes by that i don't complete the sega master <laughs> system set so it's not that one because i kind of like that feeling <laughs> i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with the intellivision mm. I've just had a lot of fun learning about the Intellivision throughout the throughout the year, collecting it and really diving in. I'm the the eleven that I need are just for the the core library, but there are a bunch of variants that I'm trying to track down as well. I mean, you've got the the Intellivision or, or the the Mattel release that's original. You've got the Intellivision Incorporated releases after Mattel sold it. You've got the Sears Telegames releases, and that's kind of topical because of the, all of the stuff that Sears is going through right now. It's kind of in its death knell. It's 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 swan song. They're they've just put off uh, closing via bankruptcy this week. Um, so it's it's something that kind of. Growing up, I always Sears was something that going through the Sears catalog before holiday seasons was always kind of a, a ritual in in our household. So, uh, I've got some ties there, if not to the Intellivision, but some of the ephemera around it. And I think you know one of the things that we're we're going to do for 2019 is have a new series of episodes where we're going to delve into. These will be special offset episodes that we may sprinkle in throughout the year on various topics um, where we we unlock history and talk about uh, a video game console and the history surrounding it or a video game series or a publisher or a personality in the video game industry. Um, and I think we have one coming up on the Intellivision. So. Uh, if you're a fan of the Intellivision, look forward to that one coming to a podcastery near you. I, I, I look forward to hearing it. Mm, mm, mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Delicious, delicious. I think that's it. I think we're done. I think so. It's been a it's been a long episode, but uh, I feel like a very fun episode. So, it has. Yeah. We had a lot. To, we had a lot to get through. Yeah. So, Caleb, yeah. where can we find you on the internet? You can find me everywhere. As Caleb J. Ross, the letter J, not the word. Caleb J. Ross, all one word. Um, probably most active on Twitter and YouTube. Um, sometimes active on Instagram, though mostly just pictures of my kids. They're adorable, don't get me wrong, but don't really have much to do with video games. And my website, CalebJRoss.com, is where you can find everything about me, including my forays into uh, armchair game development. Uh, my pictures of me kicking my cat because it's been being very loud right now. Uh, apologies if you can hear that. Uh, but yeah, I do document those in photograph form for some reason. I don't really know why I do that. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. What about you? And you can find me all over the web as VG Collectaholic. I'm on Twitter, uh, pretty active on Instagram, Facebook, and VGCollectaholic.com. And you can find the podcast at mastersofunlocking.com, on Twitter at MOU Podcast, and on Instagram at Masters of Unlocking, and also Facebook. Feel free to let us know your thoughts, shoot us some questions, use the hashtag MOU questions, and uh, let us know if you have something you'd like us to address, something you'd like us to answer, and uh, you could get featured on an upcoming episode. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcastery of choice. Leave us a review or a, a, a thumbs up, a five-star rating on iTunes. That really helps get the word out and uh, help move us up that, uh, that elusive algorithm results. 
Thank you again for joining us for episode 31 of the Masters of Unlocking. We'll see you next time. <laughs>